Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. everybody welcome to a special episode of true crime and cocktails famous fatalities edition i am your host christy oxborough and with me as always the light of my life the gorgeous co-host lauren ash how you doing i'm great uh, for if people haven't realized already first of all this is our surprise switcheroo episode so i'm very excited about that and i've also got to say i am jazzed <laughs> At this, this, uh, everything about this episode, because I did the research and all I want, all I want is to impress you. So that's basically what the next 90 minutes of my life are going to be. Look, I, I've never been on this side. I am terrified. That, I'm already kicking myself because I'm like, oh, I almost forgot Famous Fatalities edition. So I came in, I, and the thing is, I have been practicing in the shower. It just didn't work out. The way I had hoped. You know, like you practice a award speech with a shampoo bottle. Sure. Sometimes you just practice a cold open on a on a podcast and see how it feels. And it's weird. It's weird. But uh, you're right. We've done a switcheroo yeah. for those who haven't noticed. Yeah. I've already talked so much in this episode, which I know <laughs> <laughs> normally I'm a little later. But uh, yeah, we're doing a, a Freaky Friday. Yeah. One may say we've parent trapped everyone because we've switched spots. Although we did tell everybody, so I guess that's less parent trapping. That's true. That's but true. the point is, I, I'm driving this bus and I'm drinking as well. So who knows what's uh, going to happen there. But then I've got to ask, Lauren, what you drinking? Well, the one thing that's running through all of my, my veins right now is pure, unadulterated fear. So, uh... <laughs> 
I have. <laughs> so to preface this, I have been researching like a beast. I have been lucky yeah. enough that I had a few days where I wasn't working. And so I, I've, I've taken on, like, I've researched this whole thing. This wasn't like Brittany Murphy where I stirred the batter and I had a couple things. This is, I've yeah. done the entire case. Christy is, Christy is doing mm-hmm. my job. I'm doing her job. And first, I've, I've got so many things I want to talk about, which first of all is, I don't know how she does this. This is wild. <laughs> Second of all, I've, I mean, I've been up till three, four o'clock in the morning every night, mm-hmm. uh, which is a joy, but it's, it it's you you start to you start to lose it <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i yeah. i also just want to say like i again you've set the bar so high that it's less about me you love this it's less about me trying to impress the people truthfully i mean listen i don't want to disappoint the people but this really is about me Never trying could. to impress you and uh i i today we had some podcast things we were doing earlier in the day and i had to do some running around and I, I didn't eat. I've been so nervous about this episode. I haven't eaten all day. Then I ate. Then I immediately felt like I was going to go into a food coma. I took a nap. I woke up. My eyes shot open and just heart racing out of my chest. I am, again, I'm sweating. Uh, I've never, yeah. Anyway, so what am I drinking? I've, I've got a water going and I've got a Diet Coke, which some would say, is that the choice when your heart is racing? The answer is a strong no, but I am yeah. terrified to drink before this is done because I I uh, I just can't I can't risk it I can't risk it not well not after all the work I've done you know what I, I don't know how truthfully yeah. all jokes aside I don't know it and dear listeners you need to know I don't know how she drinks and does this it is a <laughs> it is really impressive because I I honestly just don't think I could you never need to impress me because before day one. I was already impressed. Wow, bless. I think for me, I'm always so nervous about doing any of this, especially near the beginning, but still, like, the nerves are still there now. So I think, like, the alcohol helps me get to a chill spot, and then it's just like, okay, I'm relaxed enough that I can speak, and then I've got some shit to say. So I think there's that. But also, I was like, you know what, maybe I shouldn't drink tonight because I gotta I gotta stay on it I gotta lead this bus I gotta go I got papers I gotta look at I've got all this but then I was like well that doesn't seem right <laughs> <laughs> so in honor of uh fully switching spots today someone is trying her first white claw <gasps> oh wow I'm terrified because I'm not only terrified of what I'm doing yeah I'm terrified of this because if I hate it I mean, they don't sponsor us, so I can say I hate it, but I will feel like a disappointment if I don't like it. Oh, I don't think you should feel like that. What, what, did you go with black cherry? I did go with black cherry. That's my fave. Um, I also have a lime one in the fridge. My other fave. Uh, what did you think? You took a sip. What do you think? Um, it's not bad. Oh, you don't love it. I mean, if you give me some time, I could love it. If Once you get, you get a few sips into it, and then it's easy drinking. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. yeah. I think that'll go down. I don't it think goes it's going to be easy. a problem going yeah. down. <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, the exciting thing, not only about switching spots, is the case chosen for this is about Carol Baskin. And now... I, I am probably the single person on the planet who has not seen Tiger King yeah. and knows nothing about it. Yeah, I know it involves big cats, and I know there's a girl that, I think she has like a hippie headband, 
And then there's a dude with a mullet. And that's where it ends. Because when this started in quarantine and everyone got into it, I was busy watching like 80s and 90s movies. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll get to it later. And then the podcast happened later. (laughs) So I just never had time. And then uh, Lauren suggested this. And I was like, maybe, I guess. Should I watch it? (laughs) To which she said, no. (laughs) Well, it was... Just get, just, I want to surprise you because there are so many things and there, there are so many things I don't know about this. Well, so. and here's what I'm going to say to that. I stand yeah. by that. I was like, I think it'll be fun, especially because we wanted to do a switcheroo episode. I was like, I think it will yes. be fun if she doesn't know any of this. So for those listeners, I think most people have probably seen it. For those of you who haven't, that's great because don't worry. I'm, you don't need to have seen it is the point. I'm going to literally give you everything you need to know. But for, for, <laughs> for those who have seen it, I do think you will enjoy getting to hear Christie's reactions as I take her through the batshit tale that is Tiger yeah. King, Carol Baskin, Joe Exotic, the whole thing. Now, here's the joke, though, is that what I've realized as I embarked into this is that because... Because of that, now I'm only getting into parts of it. Tiger King is nine episodes long. And so if I was going to begin to try and cram it all in, we'd be here all night. We'd be here for 12 hours, which could be a dream for some, but a nightmare for others. (laughs) So long story short, I, I have tried to condense it down and hit on as much that you need to know as possible to really focus on the case that we're talking about, which ultimately is, of course, the disappearance of Don Lewis, who is Carol Baskin's second husband. So, but but listen, I did a lot of research. It's not just Tiger King. There are a lot of Tiger King-related documentaries that have come out since. And there's a lot of uh, Tiger King information that you can find that has been re-released from, from prior to it. So let me tell you something. My doc, my, my, my research list is long, is the point. And I don't know why I'm bragging. I don't know why that's... I guess I just want people to know, like, I took this really seriously and I put a lot of time into it. I, I tried to take it as seriously as Christy does. I don't want people to be like, oh, great, we got the B team doing the research. This is going to suck, you know? There is no chance in this duo that you're the B team. Oh. <laughs> let's, let's say it like that. And yeah. The list of documentaries you've listed is it's impressive. Thank you. <laughs> and there was never a doubt in my mind that you would come in and research and that you wouldn't knock it out of the park. So, I mean, I'm sure the listeners are just like, well, this is a fun twist and we like it. And who knows? Maybe there's going to be more of those. Maybe if we do one six months from now, I'll still be nervous about this one. Who knows? Well, listen, that's what I was going to say. Uh, my heart needs a break. Like, I don't know. I like, maybe it gets easier, I guess. But like, oh God, the pressure's on. Again, like my armpits are soaked. <laughs> I should have maxi pads in this, in the armpits of this shirt. I am, I'm sweating and it is freezing in this house. It always is. My mother once said I kept my house so cold I could never have children because they would die from the cold. Uh, that's a true story. <laughs> I like a cold, a cold home, especially to sleep. But that's neither here nor there. Anyway, yeah. no, I. But yes, I just want people to know I really did take this seriously, and I, you know, maybe I'll prove myself by the end. You guys can be the judge. But I do have to say that my first few days of researching, I started to kind of panic because I was like, I'm not finding anything. This is feeling like you know, no new information. But oh, dear listeners, oh, true crew, let me tell you something. I am so excited. I have two things. Three things, but two especially. Three things for sure, but two of them. 
and I have Googled and I have searched and no one else that I can find is talking about these things. And I am so jazzed (laughs) to use the term often used on this podcast to share them um, not only, of course, with Christy, but with all of you. So buckle up because this is just me basically selling you on not skipping this episode. (laughs) Oh, I don't think they would. They're no, g- I know, but you're going to give you a chance. Yeah. Come on. Well, I'm saying stick with it. Stick with it is my point because we've got, yes. you know, there's stuff coming. Of and course. I'll alert you. Like, I'll make an alert when it's like, broop, broop. <laughs> <laughs> never before heard information coming. Like, I'll, 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 I'll make it clear. I'll make it clear. I can't believe that you don't have some sort of soundbite queued up so that you play it every time. Like a radio DJ that like honks yes. a horn. <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah, I can yeah. totally see a <laughs> That feels, that feels like our level. Yeah. You know, that's on brand for us, I think. Yeah. Oh, oh, we need to look into Lord. that, I think. We need to look into that. <sighs> so, do I read the synopsis on this? You do. Yeah, and we were gonna oh. we we talked about this also, and we were gonna tell the story like we always do, but we're we're frantic, we're manic, and I have so much to get through that we did think that maybe we should just get into it. Yeah, well, this isn't gonna be a short episode. It's not. <laughs> I so, this pile. So don't worry, there. It's, it's thick. It's it's a thick pile. I can't wait, and I'm also terrified of things. I I feel like I'm going into this cold. You and are. It's not like me. It's not like me. Well. I like to go in prepared, but also don't think I'm not shitting my pants over here, folks. <laughs> this, it's also like Christy, you're reading a piece of paper. Well, I don't read it with the same uh, emphasis and feeling that Lauren does. So bear with me. This is feeling very like third grade and I have to stand up and read the one paragraph and then the kid behind me has to read the next paragraph and that kind of thing. But it's so funny because every week you come in with like 30 pages of information and you sit over there like cool as a cucumber and you just like rattle off like like it's no big deal. Look, my shoulders are getting into it. You're just like, oh, here, no big deal. Truth bomb, truth bomb. Like the confidence of a, <laughs> of a, I don't even know what, of a, of a, a pride of lions. <laughs> can, can I let you in on a little secret? Yeah. Every week I come in, I'm a cocky son of a bitch. You are, which I <laughs> because love. I, I come in, I come in hot because I'm like, you know what? I got some info. She's going to like this. The people are going to like this. This is going to be mind blowing. It's going to be great. This time it's like, I don't know what's coming. I just know I've got, I've got notes for myself on like how to like be the very lowest form of Lauren because no one could bring it that high. So I'm like, ah, well, here we go. (laughs) So it's, you would think it wouldn't be a big deal to switch, but what a, what a, what a life moment of walking in another person's shoes. It really is. It really is. And we're both sick about it. Yep. Don't feel well. Yeah. But, uh, you know what? I'm doing my best. We know she's going to rock it out. So, uh, bear with me folks this is just how it goes so today we are discussing carol baskin and jack don lewis i have a lot of questions already yeah i've literally just read names Mm -hmm. all right so 
Big Cat rescuer Carol Baskin rose to fame in 2020 with the runaway success of the Netflix docuseries Tiger King, which outlined the feud between she and the Tiger King himself, Joe Exotic. (laughs) See, I knew. Uh, At first, it seemed like Carol was simply the victim of Exotic's extreme bullying tactics, but the details presented about her second husband, Don Lewis's disappearance in 1997, left viewers wondering if she is as innocent as she claims. While Joe Exotic maintains Carol killed Don and fed him to her tigers, Carol says nothing could be further from the truth. So what exactly did happen to Don Lewis? And was Carol involved? And is Carol actually an altruistic animal rights activist? Or does she have some secrets that she doesn't want the public or the police to know? I have more questions now. I love- <laughs> yeah, it's well, those aren't going to go away anytime soon. It's yep, going to take yep. us a while before uh before those start to get alleviated. Great job. Great reading. I feel like you did that's... better than I do. Come on. No. No. That's No, I'm just I learn from watching you. I learn from the best. I learned it from you. <laughs> I learned it from watching you. All yeah. right. You guys all know that reference, right? Everybody listening, I, I realize God, that I we've done so. it before, we do it and we do it a lot. It's there was a commercial in the eighties, and there was a kid who was like smoking or doing drugs. I can't remember which. And then the parents like, you know, chastises them, and the kids like, "I learned it from you. I learned it from watching you." I think it was smoking, wasn't it? Probably. You know what? We'll try and find it. We'll figure it out. All right. Yeah. All right. So thank you very much, Christy. Now over to me. <laughs> <laughs> this is weird. Okay. All right, so we're just going to get into it. I'm going to start with some background on, of course, the lady of the hour, Carol Baskin. So she was born Carol Stairs, weird middle name, but is I think it's her uh, father or her mother's maiden name, I believe. Last name was Stairs. Anyway, weird middle name. Okay, Carol Stairs Jones, June 6, 1961. She grew up in mobile homes. She described her family as plain. She said she never really realized how poor they they were until she was a teenager. Very unfortunately, she did say that at age 14, she was raped by three men at Knife Point who lived across the street from them. But at the time, uh, well, her whole childhood, her family were fundamental Christians. And so they had a belief that if a woman had something like that happen to them, that there was something she was doing to ask for it or what have you uh so they didn't really take her too seriously i Mm -hmm. i think that was important to mention just as you continue to kind of like learn more about her and and kind of like uh who she is and and how cold she can be and stuff like that and just it kind of does add to the picture of her upbringing and, and whatnot so she left home the next year at 15 i'm sure that you know, having something like that happen to you and not having the family support, I could see that wanting, you know, wanting to get out. Uh, she started working in a department store where she met her boss, Michael Murdoch, whom she soon moved in with. They were married when Carol was 17. She said in one interview it wasn't because she loved him, but it was because her family disapproved of them living in sin, living out of wedlock. And she became pregnant soon after and had her daughter, Jamie, in 1980. She has said that Michael was very toxic and abusive And the reason she stayed with him mostly was because she was terrified at the idea of being a single mother. This is also a point that I just want to highlight really quickly, which is it wasn't that she was she he was toxic and and abusive, but she doesn't qualify that as being why she was afraid to leave. It was that she was terrified of being a single mother, which, again, I find very interesting. Just figuring out this person like 
the family and their, uh, you brought this on yourself kind of thing. And what kind of shame would they bring onto her if she's a single parent? Yes, exactly. You know? And what that mm-hmm. kind of programming must have been. So one night in January 1981, Carol and Michael got into a fight. Carol said she had to throw a potato at him (laughs) to get out the door. (laughs) I I didn't really research further into what that looked like or how she threw the potato. Uh, We're just going to take her word on that, that that's what she got out, how she got out. I don't know. Anyway, lo and behold, Don Lewis happened to be driving down Nebraska Avenue in Tampa, Florida. Nice. Hitting the details. I like it. It's just going to be me being proud and gushing about it. And me just like boldly (laughs) underlining the things, wanting a reaction. Oh, what a, what a child. Anyway, so he's driving down Nebraska Avenue. He sees Carol walking down the street crying. He he stops and says, do you want to get in the car? She says no. So he drives around the block and he comes back and he asks her again, still a no. So he drives around the block again, asks her a third time. But on this third time, on the passenger seat is a handgun. And he says, look, you can hold the gun on me while I drive. I just need someone to talk to. So I also find this to be a very interesting, all of these details very interesting. So he sees a woman who is wandering around sobbing. And then he coerces her to get in the car because he needs someone to talk to. Not, I'm concerned about you. So to me, that again, it's like you saw a woman who was vulnerable. Just interesting. It's an interesting thing. Mm. So she did. She gets in the car. They drive around, her holding the gun on him so that no funny business happened. And then they drove to a motel and had sex. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. many questions already, but yeah. also where was her child at this point? I believe at home with her husband that she had just had the fight with and she walked she, out on. They had a fight. She threw a potato at him. Correct. And then was like, I'm out of here and left the child behind. As far as I can tell. And then went and nailed the guy that wouldn't take no for an answer. Also, it should be noted that at the time she was 20 and Don was 42. God. Okay. <laughs> Yes. So mm-hmm. that's how they met. Carol and Don. <laughs> yeah. It's that's so amazing. Already, right? You're, that's a meat cute if I've ever heard <laughs> one. Yeah. <laughs> it paints a picture, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so that's how they meet. And then from then on, they continued to have an affair for 10 years. Okay. Oh so God. after four years of the affair, when Carol was 24, Then she left her husband, Michael. And then six years after that, when she was 30 and Don at the time was 52, he left his wife, Gladys, uh, for Carol. Gladys was completely blindsided. She was speechless. She told him that she'd love him until the day she died, but that, of course, the relationship was over. Apparently, Don used to call Carol Angel. And Gladys, his wife, said, she's an angel. (laughs) Sorry. She's an angel sent straight from hell, and one day you'll find out. Oh. Which feels very looming, considering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, a little bit about Don. So, his name was Jack Donald Lewis. He was born April 30th, 1938. He and his two siblings were raised by a single mother, which is also interesting because that was during a time where that was not very, you know, not very common. 
She was a seamstress and she sold bread. They lived in poverty, which some say is what inspired him to become a businessman. He had many jobs in high school, including bag boy at an A&P grocery store when he was 15. And it was there that he winked at a young Gladys Cross. She was 12 at the time. And oh, my God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> How old was he at this point? 15. Oh, uh, that's a very gray area, but it's, like, well, darker than gray. <laughs> well, considering know. they started dating shortly after and they got married oh. two years later when she was 14 oh. and he was 17. Yeah. yeah. Uh, even in that time period, they still both had to get permission from their mothers to get married because they were just so young. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, 11 months after they were married, they had their first child together. So. Don started hauling rock and sand in Dade City and then bought five dump trucks. In the early 1960s, he began driving tankers for Texaco and Red Wing carriers in Tampa. On the side, he bought washing machines, repaired them, and resold them at profit. He invested in used cars, making money at auctions. Then he moved into real estate. He would buy bad mortgages from other lenders, let the people stay in the houses if they paid him 18% interest on what they already owed. If they made six house payments on time to him, he would sell the mortgage. But if they didn't, he would foreclose on them. So he basically was trying to take advantage of people who were in a pretty shitty situation. And he ended up making a ton of money doing it. So one of his friends, Wendell Williams, was a real estate investor. And he said, I don't want anyone to think Mr. Lewis was not ruthless because he was. I think this is an important point to mention because none of the documentaries that I watched talked about this but this is a potential motive for people to you know want to kill him obviously he's someone that ended up you know going missing disappeared which we'll get to obviously but this is a person who made a ton of money basically stealing people's homes from them and making you know putting people out of their homes uh again I just think that that's that creates a lot of motive which not a lot of people really explored in the documentaries so Don and his wife Gladys went on to have two more daughters together. Multiple sources also specifically list that they had an adopted son. I would just say son. If I always think that's weird when it's qualified that way, like it's your son. Yeah. But I haven't found anything else about the the apparent son, so I'm not sure if that person just doesn't want to be in the public eye. Perhaps he's passed on. I, I could not find any information about him. So Don was very, very, very successful. He was a true self-made millionaire many, many times over, but he was notorious for dressing extremely cheaply and for running his business out of a rundown trailer in a parking lot. But so he would wear like a $1 t-shirt and a pair of jeans he bought at a yard sale, but he would always carry a $500 bill on him. He was one of these people that like, you know what I mean? Like a rich person that like loved their money, but, but also didn't want to spend their money. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. So Gladys confirmed that he would bury his money routinely. So they had a little red barn in their backyard, and I guess he would put money in jars and then literally bury it in the ground. (laughs) She was unclear about why he did this, but I guess maybe she said something like maybe he liked having cash nearby. I don't know. To me, that is just a way to avoid paying tax. (laughs) Trying to get paid in cash as much as you can and then not putting it in a bank account. That's to me, that's that's a cut and dry. Yeah. You know, well, she did say she would love him for the rest of her life. So maybe she's just like, he's such a saint. Well, 
Mm, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, he's not. (laughs) (laughs) I just feel like there's, it's just such an extreme thing. And for somebody who was clearly making so much money, it's like, I wonder how much money was buried. But anyway, his daughters say they had a great childhood. They say he was obsessed with animals. They would always come home and find a new exotic animal in the house. Gladys said Don was a great husband. Great husband. Except for all the times people would call to say they'd seen him with another woman. Oh, yeah. Gladys. Oh, Gladys. Exactly. Uh, what the kids didn't know was that their dad was a serial cheater. The term sexaholic has been used. <laughs> oh, yeah. Boy. Gladys said yep. that in the 34 years they were married, she knew about around 25 other women. And oh, my God. Yeah. She said anytime she would find out about one, she would threaten to leave him and then he would promise never to do it again. And she would just accept that. She would, she would, I guess, accept that he had changed. Obviously, he never did. I feel like probably she had to know that he wasn't at some point. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like she knew what she was doing. But anyway, so some context from the other side. The night that he met Carol walking down the street, when she was walking down the street crying, and he picked her up in the truck, and they... Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Don and Gladys had also gotten into a fight that night. And at the time, Don was on the way to his girlfriend's house. So (laughs) he left his wife to go to his girlfriend's house and on the way cheated on both his wife and his girlfriend with a complete stranger that he met on the side of the road who happened to be 22 years younger than him. So what a tangled web already we weave. Yeah. Oh, my God. I just... Gladys... Get a spine and some confidence, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think it was hard for her because I think that she really did love him. And I think that in many ways oh. he was a really, really good dad and, and husband. But obviously it's like, no, because I would say that serially cheating is probably just outweighs the rest. But that's just my opinion. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'd find that problematic. Yeah. Especially, I mean, again, they didn't. Yeah. It's not like they had an agreement or something. And certainly during the. 80s I feel like that was less well even before then the 70s and 80s I feel like there was less people doing those kinds of things but anyway uh open relationship wise so when asked Gladys said Carol wasn't that special she was just like the other 25 women she said but greedier that was one quote she also went on to say I think she is the worst thing to ever happen to the United States of America (laughs) Gladys has found her has found her confidence is my point (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Good for you, Gladys. This could also be in part because in 1990, Carol wrote Gladys an 11-page single-spaced letter. In it, she referred to her first marriage to Michael, saying, I had to get out of my marriage, and I would have eventually killed my husband to do it. This letter was sent August 20th, 1990. Seven years later, almost to the day, Don... At the time, her second husband disappeared. That would be when I put in like a music sting. You know what I mean? Nice. Well, we'd also like have the lights lower. And then when you say disappeared, the lights would like flicker on or something. And it would be like, (laughs) I don't know. That was a terrible noise. You know what I mean? Like a a rumbling of thunder in the distance or something. And it's like, oh. And the lights flicker, and then we're like, oh, and there's ghosts here. Like, it would be a whole level. Yeah. That was nice. Thank you so much. That was nice. Thank you. Don't put it in writing. 
I know. Well, even if you're if you're so angry, you're you feel like you could kill someone. Never actually put it in writing. And why? So so at this point, Carol has finally been the one woman that has got Don to leave Gladys. Right. So Don has cheated for thirty four years plus with all sure. these women. He decides to leave Gladys for Carol, and then Carol thinks she needs to write Gladys a letter about anything? First of all, I would say keep your letter to yourself. Gladys does not want to see it or read it. And secondly, why on earth would you reference wanting to kill, saying you could probably kill your first husband? I mean, that's nuts. I mean, is it like a case of she just felt like she didn't want someone to hate, dislike her? So it was like, well, I need to give you the reason of why I'm justified in stealing your husband. And it's like, it doesn't matter what you say. You stole her husband. You can say it in a single line of like, I'm shitty. Sorry. <laughs> and then just move on. Yeah, I think I'm shitty. Oh. Sorry would have done it. But great yeah. point. So 1984, at this point, this is before they have left... Uh, their partners. They're only a few years into their affair at this point. Carol starts working with Don on real estate deals. This is important to remember later. So that's when they started their business relationship. So they started this business relationship and then, you know, they continued their sexual relationship the whole time. But after his divorce in 1990, Carol and Don did get married the next year in 1991 and opened something called Wildlife on Easy Street, which was an animal sanctuary. That's important for later, too which was always a point of contention between Carol and Don because Carol wanted to keep the animals as pets and Don wanted to breed and sell them like a business. Now, it should also be noted for later, the reason, part of the reason that the business was called this or the sanctuary was called this is because the place they lived, where the sanctuary was, it was on Easy Street. So it was literally, it was a literal name. Not very clever, just wildlife on Easy Street. Say what you see. I assumed it was uh, in reference to the original Annie movie, it's a song sung by, I believe, Tim Curry and Carol Burnett. Yes. Oh, I think Bernadette Peters is there too. Is but, it, isn't she always? Oh, <laughs> if, if I had my way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what a yeah. treasure. But yes, that's important for later as well. Because I was like, what's that about? Just the name of the street. Okay. So the other thing that's important to know is Don had a fascination with Costa Rica. He owned property there and absolutely loved it. His ultimate goal was to move all of the animals from the Easy Street location in Florida down to Costa Rica to open a zoo there. The laws about exotic animal trade are far looser in Costa Rica than in the U.S. and he saw this as a good opportunity. Uh, it was also kind of common knowledge that he had at least one girlfriend down there. <laughs> oh my god. Which could have Of course he did. Yeah, of course he did exactly, which also may have been a factor in why he went so often. Carol said that anytime he was away, she would have vets come to the sanctuary and secretly spay and neuter as many of the animals as possible so that Don couldn't try and breed them later when he got back. I mean, lots of communication happening in this relationship. Yeah. Well, I mean, it it's not the healthiest of marriages, but they didn't start off right, so they could only, the only place they had to go was down. Oh, I can't. do they? <laughs> so, fast forward to summer 1997. Don pays a visit to his longtime friend, Anne McQueen. Anne is one of Don's oldest friends, It's and it's the person that he trusts the most. It is probably also the only woman he's 
never tried to bone. And uh, Thank you. That was a question I was going to have. Yeah. She did say, it's the only time I've ever been happy to be short and fat in my life. <laughs> okay. I love Anne. Oh, I love Anne. <laughs> Anne's a character. She's great. So he met her at the very beginning of his career. So right when he was first starting out and he was getting his trucking business going, like I said, he bought all those, yeah. those trucks. She, at the time, barely had an eighth grade education. But for some reason, he took a shine to her. He taught her how to keep his books. And she literally worked for him up until his disappearance. She worked with him for his entire the rest of his life, basically. She was his number one advisor, the executor of his will, a trustee, his whole family. Oh. Loved her, trusted her. Like, this was his number one go-to person across the board. So, there was an encounter that happened between the two of them sometime between June and August. She she never said what the exact date was. But at that time, he came to see her and he handed her an envelope and said, Don't open this until a time when you know you should. You'll know when you need to, he said. So, she tucked this envelope away. Then, on Friday, August 15th, 1997... Don comes to see her again. He says that he and Carol got into a huge fight the night before and Don had slept in the cabin of an 18-wheeler. I guess they just had those on their property. I don't know. He told Anne that he was going to tell Carol that he wants a divorce. So then he leaves. Anne tries to call him a couple of hours later. Can't reach him. She tries him again that afternoon. That night. The next day. Nothing. Sunday, she calls Carol and says she can't reach him. Carol says, oh, he does this all the time. It's no big deal. So he was trying to ship cars down to Costa Rica and needed key information. She needed the VIN numbers from the car. So she had to connect with him. And she was like, it's very odd for him not to get back to me. Certainly not for that long. And then he was last seen on the 18th, reported missing on the 19th around 1.30 p.m. And the only reason he was reported missing was because... Carol had a conversation with Anne and Carol was like, do you think I should report him missing? And to quote Anne, she said, and I quote, um, you think? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We love Anne. We love Anne. Yeah. I'm not going to stop liking Anne. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, she's everything you want her to be. So Carol claims that she saw Don the morning of Monday, August 18th. And she says the last thing he said to her was that he needed Kenny, who is one of their closest hand, like, um, He's kind of like a repair guy that did all the work on the sanctuary for them. Sure. He needed Kenny to get a truck ready because he would be leaving early, early, early the next morning to head to Miami to go to Costa Rica. This was also about transporting the cars. He said something there. Now, it's important to note that in multiple interviews when she was asked, she Carol always said the quote, early, early, early. She always said it three times. This is something I've noted in multiple interviews that she's given about this. Just something I noticed. So Mm. Kenny Farr was his name. He was a very loyal worker. He worked for them for a long time. He will come back into play later. So at this point, Don is missing and Anne remembers, oh my gosh, I have this envelope that he gave me and said, you'll know when. And she's like, I think now's when. So she opens it and what's inside? Oh, it's the restraining order that he tried to get against Carol two months prior, but was rejected. Yeah. Why was he rejected? So I guess at the time, in general, I guess it's actually quite difficult for a man to get a restraining order against a woman, which is very sad. But part of the reason being is that you need, there needs to either be physical violence or stalking happening. If it's just threats of violence, they tend to not, certainly at this time anyway, they tend to not give out orders oh. of protection. So a judge did deny it. 
So he requested it in June 1997, and it outlined that he said he was fearing for his life. He felt Carol was going to kill him and that he wanted protection. But because there was no, again, there was no physical violence or stalking, it was rejected. It's said that she at that time had threatened to kill him twice. He wrote, quote, this is the second time Carol has gotten angry enough to threaten to kill me. He also spelled enough E-N-O-U-F. That stood out to me. I don't know whether that, I don't know. I just stood out to me. He also said that she had her own revolver and had hidden his 357, which I think is like a 357 Magnum. I'm guessing. I don't know guns. Uh, so anyway, so she had access to two guns and he didn't know where the one of them was. Enter Joseph Fritz. Now this is Don's lawyer and friend of many, many years. He said, again, like I said, it's virtually impossible to get one unless you can show stalking or battery. He said, and this quote really chilled me to my core. He said, we don't refrain, sorry, we don't restrain freak speech in this country. We punish it after it's done. And I was like, that's chilling. (laughs) I get it. I get it. But also it's chilling that it's like, of course, you can threaten to kill somebody and potentially, you know, no ramifications, but it has to get physical. So, okay. Yeah. So this is when things are going to start to amp up about a week later. So at this point, again, he's missing. She's opened this. She's read this letter. A week later, she's at the police station because at this point, the police have, have narrowed it down to two suspects, Carol Baskin and Anne McQueen. Now, Anne McQueen completely, I know, she completely (laughs) cooperated with the police. She did polygraph tests. She let them search her house, everything. Guess who refused? Carol Baskin. Yes, who was Carol Lewis at the time. But at about a week later, Anne was at the police station talking to the police. Again, I'm sure going through one of these many interviews that she did. And she got a call from the alarm company saying that the office alarm was going off. So police got there before she could because, again, she was being questioned at the time. And they discovered Carol, her father, and Kenny Farr, that loyal handyman, had removed everything from Don's office. So this is an office that Anne worked in for years and Don. Yeah. They cut the locks on the gate. They cut the locks on the office door. And then they cut off the power, the water, the sewer, everything. At this point, Don had only been missing for a week. And they literally cut off everything to his office and took absolutely everything in there. I mean. There was two wills and two powers of attorney that were in Anne's office in her desk. They were all taken. So Don's wills, Don's power of attorneys, gone. Police said that they can't stop someone's wife from doing that. That it was Don's wife so that she had a right to those things, I guess. Mm-hmm. They never went back to the office after that, but C- Carol claims that Anne had given her the alarm code the night before, but must have changed it before she got there. Anne, of course, denies this. So, Maya, yeah. So, again, if she had been talking to her the night before and needed to get the alarm code, wouldn't they have also talked about the padlocks that would have had to have been cut off? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there would have also had to have been an exchange of keys. Yeah. Huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, it gets crazier. And we've just begun. So, Carol goes to court with the power of attorney document that she prepared herself. But she claims was, you know, she basically transcribed from what Don wanted, which says, in case of my disappearance, Carol will be my power of attorney. Multiple lawyers have been 
interviewed in a lot of the documentaries. Again, I watched multiple documentaries, and every single word of the, every single one of them have said, not in their thirty plus, twenty plus, whatever plus careers, have they yeah. ever seen a document saying in case of my disappearance? Because people write these documents. <sighs> In case of my death, because we all know that eventually we're all going to die, but nobody yeah. tends to anticipate disappearance, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Carol claimed that because he made so many trips to Costa Rica that she felt like that was an appropriate thing to do. But again, multi- every lawyer that they talk to, and it's multiple people, every single one of them across the board is like, no, I've never heard of that before. So, Mm -hmm. Carol made millions because of the power of attorney change. So, basically, it was originally in Anne's name, but then, of course, it got changed to Carol's name. And because of that, Carol got a lot of money. And my cat is just, he's all over my notes. Okay, there you go. Thank you, Sharky. He wants to stir the batter. So, when Anne started to push back, because she was like, wait a minute, like, we didn't okay this power of attorney change. Like, what are you talking about? Carol goes public accusing Anne McQueen of embezzlement, which Anne completely denies. There's like no proof of it. Again, Don, Don's family, nobody believes this is true. And again, there's no proof of it. So this brings us to the first, well, no, this isn't the first thing I, this isn't the first crazy thing, that, but no, I mean, it's all crazy. I, I just, just get to it, Lauren. Okay. So. You're doing great. Thanks so much. I'm just, I, I'm like, am I dry? Is this boring? I mean, I, I feel like no. I'm just prattling. I'm just prattling no. on. You are doing great. Okay. All right. Well, okay. Here we go. My heart is, it's racing. It's racing. It's beating so fast. It's good. It's good. I, I can't believe I'm not taking pictures of this right now. Like, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like the parent in the audience watching my kid perform at like a Christmas pageant. Yeah. And I'm like yelling at the other parents because they're like trying to stand up and take a picture and... I'm trying to take a picture of the real star. Oh, and I'm you like, know? see is for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> this is my Christmas pageant. Yeah. I, I love like it. it. All right. So here's, uh, just it's just this, this is so delicious. The signatures on the will and the power of attorney seemed a little odd. And it was what? noted that they were freakishly identical. So a handwriting expert examined them in one of the documentaries I saw and said they're too similar to be normal. They lacked normal natural variation and that a lack of variance is a telltale sign of tracing. Another handwriting expert, Thomas Vastrict of Apopka, Florida, said every signature on the will and power of attorney were traced. Two more handwriting experts concluded that Don Lewis's signature was traced. They found the original document that was identical and the original document that he did sign was his 1991 marriage license to Carol. Who would have access to that, I wonder? Uh-huh. Mhm. So then they noticed not only was Don's signature traced, but so was the notary. And in total, there was four different people whose signatures had been forged. Two witnesses, a notary public, and Don. All of them were traced. So, people are speculating that if the tracing was done before Don went missing, that could prove that there was an intent to murder, right? Because if if his will and power of attorney were forged and then he went missing, right? 
So on June 3rd, 2020, this new evidence. So again, he went missing in 1997. This is this is up to the this is up to date. This is because of Tiger King, the documentary that this is even being looked at again, which must be a fucking nightmare for Carol Baskin. Anyway, so on June 3rd of last year, the evidence was taken to the sheriff, Chad Cronister, who went public saying Don's will was in fact a forgery and says that they need to reopen the case. So the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office turned the case over to the Florida Attorney General's Office, which determined that the five-year statute of limitations on forgery had passed. So they were like, well, yeah, but there's nothing re- we can do about it. So the only re- oh my God. I know. So the only <laughs> way that the forgeries could even be relevant now is if in a larger case, right? If in a, they had a larger case against Carol, for example, they could potentially bring this forward, but in terms of, it, it, I mean, they can't try that crime on its own. I mean, I know this is early, but Carol is a sneaky bitch. Oh, she is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's crafty. She's, she's crafty. She's wily. For sure, for sure. Yeah. So because of this, people started to talk. Because you could no longer be charged with the forgery, like that there was a statute of limitations, people involved in this started to come forward that had stayed silent. So just to give a background, because I was like, what is it exactly? Like, how important are notaries? Notaries are super, super important. They take an oath that they have to, to they have to carry out uh, to be impartial witnesses, to authenticate and help deter fraud in signing documents, according to the National Notary Association. It's a big deal. Like, notary fraud, I think, is exceptionally rare and, and like, it's a big deal. They, they are required to check identities to make sure that everyone who is signing isn't under, under duress. The notary involved on these documents says she doesn't remember the will at all. Her name was Sandra Whitcomp, and she says, and I quote, I was just the housekeeper. Yeah. So she worked for Carol and Dawn for six years. And she says she has no memory of it, even though her name is on it. And it may have actually been impossible for her to have been the notary because the notary stamp that she needed to ha- she needed to have it in time to sign the will and a power of attorney on November 21st, 1996. Apparently, her application to renew her notary status came in November 16th, 1996. So that's only five days. And according to Anne McQueen, who is also a notary, it takes two weeks for the stamp to be produced and delivered. There's no way on God's earth that the notary would have had that stamp by November 21st, 1996, she said. And in addition, the application for the renewal for Sandra Whitcop's notary application shows that her notary stamp was mailed not to her own address, but to Carol Baskin's address on Easy Street in Tampa, where the big cat rescue is. So the notary stamp of Sandra Whitcop was delivered to Carol Baskin. Who knows what she's done with it? Who knows how many documents she could have used it for? Right? So, so yes. So in the days following his disappearance, Carol Baskin used the power of attorney to control his estate that would give her the bulk of that estate. Now, there's another signer person who signed. So that's about the power of attorney. Now, the will. So Susan Aronoff has already told authorities that she testified she was there for the will signing when she wasn't. Two days after Don disappeared, Carol filled out the forms for Susan to set up a nonprofit of her own for her own animal sanctuary called Preservation Station, which is now known as Zooville, USA. And Carol paid the $700 registration fee for her. 
So there's a series of emails that took place February 25th, 2005, where she wrote that Don disappeared and the kids were contesting the will. I got a phone call from Carol to go to court because it seemed like I was one of the supposed witnesses on the will. The problem with the will is that Carol had backed me against a wall at the time and from fear of her, I signed the statement swearing it to be my signature, even though it wasn't. I could go to jail for that from what I'm told. So just everybody's terrified of Carol. Terrified. Terrified. She also mm. she also wrote in those emails that she had a letter of recommendation for her class one certification to own big cats with what was reported to be Don's signature on it. However, Don told me, this is Susan talking, Don told me that was Carol's version of his signature and that if I ever saw his, I would known that that wasn't it. So... While Don was still alive, he was telling people, if you see this specific version of my signature, that's not me, that's Carol. <laughs> so he knew about, he knew about her forgery about as much as Gladys knew about his, uh, <laughs> dicking around. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, again, the only person, she, Susan did not want to comment. Doug Edwards, whose signature is also on those documents, didn't comment. And obviously, Carol has not commented on all of that. And said the only power of attorney and will that she knew about for Don was the one that was under her desk. She had never heard of this other version that Carol managed to produce. Uh, Don had prior made and the executor for his will, the, her power of, his power of attorney, and the, I think, whatever it is, the head of his life insurance his family totally believes Anne, believes that all of this is true. But on the new one, of course, it was only Carol. And Anne is swearing that she's like, I've never seen this. So it's definitely been changed is the point. Don's daughter, when heard about hearing about the forgeries, said, I'm ecstatic because it proves the handwriting analysis we did 23 years ago is right. And we couldn't get anyone to listen to us. We know the case is not going to be solved outright or overnight. We might be in this for the long haul. So... Sounds to me, sounds to me like uh, the family knew what up, what was up from early on. And it's interesting that all of this, again, has been brought to light because of Tiger King, which it's so interesting because, again, we haven't even scratched into that part of this world yet, but it must be such a nightmare for her because she got so hugely famous and now it's bringing all of this back. Like, I don't know why she would have even wanted to have been in that documentary considering... All of this is following her, you know? Oh, my guess is fame. It, like, in her sure. mind, it was like, I want to be famous. Yes, I want to be seen on TV. Get my name and face out there. How much more money can that bring me? Right. Because she seems very financially motivated. Mm. Well, <laughs> yeah, I think that's, yeah, I think that's fair yeah. to say. Fair to say. All right. So, the next little tidbit here. So, Carol's brother worked for the sheriff's department at the time, and there was some people that speculated, perhaps, it's not insane, that he would be like, hey, when all of this was going down in 1997 and Dawn's gone missing, it's possible he could have influenced other people to give her an easier time. I don't think that's a crazy thing to say. Carol says she never really knew her brother because he was nine when she was 15 and says they never really had much of a relationship. Now, you now I, I understand that she also left home when she was 15, so I get it, but I don't know. I feel like it, it, that also doesn't say to me that there was any negative relationship. 
Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Now, this is, this is one of the details that it just feels crazy. The day that Dawn went missing, Carol left her house at 3 a.m., to go to Albertsons to get milk byproduct for the cats. Her car broke down. She ran into her brother, who was accompanied by another deputy. That other deputy gave her a ride home. After that, she said she saw Dawn several hours later at 6 a.m. And I don't know that that was ever properly investigated. And I know that you could say that maybe it was and it checked out or whatever, but it seems very odd to me because I also don't know if anyone has been able to confirm that she did see him at 6 a.m. that morning. And this will come into play, you know, much later in this episode when we get into theories, but I was like, so she's just randomly out. She's doing a a run for milk to feed the cats at 3 o'clock in the morning, and then she saw Dawn three hours later at 6 a.m. Like, it's just very strange to me. Like, and I don't know that she could ever prove that. I don't, I, I from what I, I couldn't find anything that said there was a third party that saw him at 6 a.m. with her. So we're just taking her word for it, the woman who's lied multiple times already? So this is the day he goes missing, right? Yeah. That she supposedly sees him at 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. Did she not say he left early, early, early? Specifically, early, early, early was three times? She's suggesting that he said that at 6 a.m. that morning. That, that he was at 6 a.m. on the 18th, he said to her, Kenny needs to get the truck ready today because tomorrow I'm leaving early, early, early. Oh, okay. Because yeah. I was going to say 6 a.m. is early, but it's not early, early, early. Well, also, but did he say that to her actually on Sunday and at 3 a.m. the next day? You know, I have many theories about did he say that to her, but just at a different time? You know what I'm saying? Like, I've just never heard anything that can prove yeah. that that she's telling the truth. And I don't know, again, why we would trust her on that. So some other... Key points, Carol's family didn't love Don. Carol's dad absolutely hated him. Uh, Another fun point, uh, Carol claimed that Don showed early signs of Alzheimer's when he went missing, that he had started leaving cage doors open and cats had been getting out. Don was 59 when he went missing, but multiple other people in his life said that he was as sharp as a tack, completely with it, no signs of anything Alzheimer's related, dementia related. Mm. I, of course, did just a quick little, you know, research on Alzheimer's. Um... From what I read, it said that 5% of Alzheimer's cases are considered early onset, which means you would be diagnosed between 30 and 64. So that would classify him in that 5% because he was 59. Sure. Of those 5%, 58% are women. So statistically, it's not impossible that he could have been experiencing this, but it's just of note that, you know, it would it's yeah. a small percentage of men at that age. She also said that he had been diagnosed bipolar, Shortly before he went missing, there's also no one to corroborate that in any way. Mm. She also said he was never the same again after he had gone through a plane crash, which we will get into very shortly. But my point here is that she said a lot of conflicting things about the reasons why he wasn't mentally sound at the time of his disappearance. She talked also about yeah. that she that he had uh, he would spend five minutes at a time not knowing who he was, that he had you know been dumpster diving and then would call her and say he didn't know where he was or who he was, that kind of thing. I don't know. So, Dale Lively. Dale Lively was the mechanic who worked on Don's van. They knew each other for years and years and years. He's one of the people that has said there's no way Don had Alzheimer's. Don brought his van in four days before he disappeared to do some air conditioning work. Don was there for an hour. 
So Dale remembers this conversation. He was totally excited about Costa Rica. He was talking about moving his cats down there. He told Dale in this conversation that he was afraid of Carol, that he was afraid that she would kill him. And then he tried to get Dale to come to Costa Rica with him that weekend. So he he said he pushed and pushed and that Dale was like, I just can't do it, man. He doesn't. So, so Dale says he doesn't understand why Don would keep inviting him if he was planning to disappear or fake his own death. Because some people think, you know, did Don fake his own death? Is he in Costa Rica right now living his best life? Who knows? Mm. So this van that Dale was working on was found on August 20th, 1997. So again, you know, Carol reports to be the last one seeing Don 6 a.m. on the 19th. Sorry, on the 18th. She reports him missing at 1.30 p.m. on the 19th. And then on August 20th, the van is found. Don's keys and briefcase are inside. Uh, the van is found by someone named Dewey Gallows. And Dewey and Don had a massive falling out because Don owned a bunch of small planes. And Dewey had them on consignment. So he was selling them for Don. And one of them got sold at a loss. Don was super pissed. So he pulled the rest of his planes from Dewey's airport and said he's never coming back there. People who knew them said there was absolutely no way he would ever go back to that airport because of this huge falling out with Dewey, and that is the exact airport where his van was found. So it's a little bit odd that that would happen. The van immediately gets released to Carol, who takes it home, and it didn't get processed until days later. So they did find one fingerprint in that van days later, which was Dale's, of course, the mechanic. There was no prints anywhere else, not on the steering wheel, nowhere. Not Don's, not Carol's, no one's. The only fingerprint singular was on the center console near the air conditioning unit. And Dale, when questioned by police, was like, of course my fingerprints were in there. And then he said, and my fingerprints should have been all over the car. If you're finding that there's only one of my fingerprints in there and I had been working on that car for days prior, you have a problem. Someone's wiped that car down because that doesn't make any sense. The police, he said, after about 15 minutes of questioning, left and he never heard from them again. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So at this point, it's kind of the narrative that we're starting to see form is that it's looking like, did Don take one of these multiple small planes of his and fly to Costa Rica or fly away his van was left in this airport you know did he get on this plane did he crash did he get on a plane trying to fly away did he crash into the Gulf of Mexico for example so some people said you know did he fly was he flying to Costa Rica well it would have taken him four to five pit stops on the way from Florida to Costa Rica in the size plane that he was in he would have had to refuel four or five times so it feels like that's probably not the case And it's also important to note, he wasn't a great pilot. So (laughs) there's a gentleman named Wayne Pym, and that was Don's flying instructor, who taught Don. Don was never fully licensed, according to Wayne. He started teaching him in 1985. He said that Don was constantly buying and selling planes, these specific single-engine planes, which are very small. You can only get 500 miles on a tank. And... Prior to him teaching Don, Don had a plane crash in Cedar Key, Florida. He tried to land but ended up in water. (laughs) There was another crash in the Panhandle where he was caught in bad weather and didn't see power lines and hit them. And then there was a much more serious crash 
in the early 90s that apparently Don was very, very lucky to have survived. And he said he would never fly again. And many people who were asked said, oh, yeah, after his third plane crash, Don never flew again. And that he, he never got his full pilot's license. Carol claims that Don did get his full pilot's license, but that he crashed the next day. She also said that that last crash was the reason he was never the same again and he would have these episodes, et cetera, et cetera. So Wayne, this flight instructor, thinks it's absolutely foul play, but he does not think that a plane is involved. Joseph Fritz, I'll remind you, Don's friend and lawyer, he saw him within 10 days of his disappearance. He knew him for over 10 years. And McQueen, around the time of his disappearance, had been asking about a divorce attorney because, of course, Don had communicated he wanted to divorce Carol. Mm-hmm. He had heard from two separate sources that Don had been strangled from the backseat of an airplane with an electric cord and dumped into the Gulf of Mexico. And when asked, like, well, who'd you hear that from? He's like, I can't tell you that. So the airport where the van was found is in an, it's an unmanned airport. And what that means is, is that you don't have to log in or log out when you fly from there. So... First of all, that's wildly convenient if you're trying to do something shady because you can go in and out and there's no record of it. Second of all, if there's also some speculation because he had so many planes that if he could have shown up to sell a plane to somebody, the person wanted to take it for a test drive, something happens in the air, they crash. Now, there's also some, you know, debate about how difficult it would be in one of those tiny planes to physically strangle someone, to physically get somebody out of the plane. There is some debate about, and I tend to agree that that would be probably very physically difficult. But Carol, Carol has addressed this because Carol, as a quick aside, has started doing these video blogs. Now she has for years and years and years, but recently she has started reading old journal entries. So she'll read a journal entry from around this time and she'll post it all over her social media. This is interesting to me for a few reasons. One, how are we to know that, do we just trust that you wrote that whenever you wrote it? Like, you know what I mean? Like, okay, it's from your journal entry on whatever day in 1996. Like, okay, or you could have written it yesterday. Who knows? So she addresses this in her video blog. She says, self-defense could have happened, not a cold-blooded murder. You know, what she doesn't address. It's some never before talked about information. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Old Lauren Ash, internet web sleuth, managed to dig up a little piece of information that neither Carol nor anyone on the internet is talking about. Carol had a pilot's license. <gasps> she did not. Oh, that wily bitch. She conveniently got that pilot's license, which was issued to her in October 1996, I will remind you Don went missing in August 1997. I would say that that is, you know, just under a year, which is more than enough time to properly learn how to pilot a plane. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a, a student license or whatever. But my whole point is, is that she obviously was learning to fly. Like, it's, it's there. And I have triple checked yeah. this. I've gone on all the sites that you need to, it is real. And the thing that's even crazier is that January 31st, 2021, she has upped her status and she's now a level master parachute rigger out of nowhere. What's that about? Huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Huh. 
So, again, this this is one of the pieces of information where I was, like, losing my mind because I was like, what do you, what do you mean she had a pilot's license? It's because, you know, now my brain starts to go, right? So we know yep. that Carol stated many times the last thing early, early, early was what she, he said the morning of the 18th. She happened to be driving around town at 3 a.m. the morning of the 18th. Is it possible she wanted to make it look like he had left his van at the airport because she had gone with him on a plane in the middle of the night, pushed him out? Can they account for their whereabouts the night before or the day of? She Like, like does she have an alibi for prior to when he was reported missing? Because it feels like it's only being reported, like there was only an investigation after he was reported missing. What about the days leading up where the only person who's talking about him still being seen is her? What if it was her days prior? Oh, I I think we know it was. <laughs> Again, right? it's early, but I think we know it was. I mean, it just feels like, again, and I understand that it's very difficult feasibly physically to push someone out of a plane I get it but she in multiple interviews talked about like well you know he liked to fly under the radar illegally you know and could have easily you know over the Gulf of Mexico he very easily could have crashed she talked about that and it's like are you setting up this narrative I mean the van was found at the airport you're talking about how he could have crashed how he's had crashes before she talked about that too now again how does she physically do this Stay tuned because when we get to the theories at the end, I I will build on this because there's more information to come. But Carol Baskin has a pilot's license. She got it within a year of him going missing. That, to me, is huge. That's a huge find. Huge find. Of course that's a huge find. Thank you very much. Very proud I mean, of that one. That, that is not only impressive work, but like, my God, come on. Come on, Carol. The reason Carol's not talking about it is because she knows people are going to link all of this together. How could people not? I was like, this is. It just feels to me. It again. It just feels to me like it. It it has to be connected. And the fact that no one. Again, I found it. So if I could find it, other people could like a, a you know, a detective could find it. You know what I'm saying? Like, it just feels to me again like that's something that needs to be investigated. And in one of the documentaries, they talked about how. This the the when she was found by her own brother driving around in her car breaks down at three o'clock in the morning, was that ever properly investigated? D- you know, does she have proof that of going to the Albertsons? You know, again, to me, it's like it feels to me more than possible that it was late that night before. Perhaps she was coming back from getting rid of him. You know, at three a.m. gets the car yeah. breaks down. She's like, oh, I was going to the grocery store. But she was actually coming back from that. And then she claims to see him hours later. No one is going to question her story. Just saying. The last thing I I wanted to say on this point uh, was that the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office say they found no sign of foul play at the wildlife on Easy Street Sanctuary. And they also visited the Costa Rican town of, oh boy, Bagaches? Bagasis? That's, I'm so sorry. And that is where Dawn owned a 200-acre park. The investigation in Costa Rica lasted five days. Investigators did find indications that Don had engaged in extramarital affairs and questionable business practices and that two of the ocelots he had shipped down there were never recovered or found. But that was it. So they did five days in Costa Rica. They couldn't find anything else out about him. They said there was no signs of foul play. 
in at the property in Tampa, but it should also be noted that the property in Tampa is huge and it's very unclear how long they searched it, how thoroughly they searched it. Hard to say. Oh, I am beside myself on <laughs> so many of these things, not just her, but like the police, what's going on there. I I have a lot of questions, but I feel like you'll answer those questions after we take a break. So we're going to get into all all of that later. So refresh your drink, have a tinkle, do a stretch if you need to, and uh, we'll be right back with more about the crazy cat lady, Carol Baskin, on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails, Famous Fatalities Edition. What's up, everybody? This is Lauren Ash, and I hope you're enjoying this episode of True Crime and Cocktails Famous Fatalities Edition. A couple of quick reminders. If you're looking for any of the visuals Christy mentions in this or any of our episodes of the podcast, make sure to follow us at True Crime and Cocktails on Instagram. There she posts a case file with all the relevant visuals for each episode of the show. If that's not enough for you, you want a little bit more, go to our website, truecrimeandcocktails.com. There, Christy posts extensive virtual case files. This is literally everything she finds in her research. It's a treasure trove of deep dives, and it's all there for your enjoyment. Also on the website, you can find our full unedited Zoom episodes of the show if you'd like to watch rather than listen. And make sure to give us a follow on Facebook at True Crime and Cocktails, Twitter at Not Detectives, and the most important piece of information, if you like the show, please, wherever you listen to it, give us a nice rating. Go on to Apple, leave us a nice review. I know it sounds like a silly cliche, but the truth is it really goes a long way in this crazy podcast world, and your support means the world to us. But enough about all that. Get yourself another drink, sit back, and enjoy. Enjoy the rest of the show. All right. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails, Famous Fatalities Edition. Of course, we are talking about the one and only Carol Baskin. Uh, we left off with the explosive discovery that Carol secretly had a pilot's license. So, Lauren, what else you got for me? Oh, I like that. I got to start doing that, <laughs> adding in the explosive discoveries. I like that. I, I'm just barely hanging on. No, I, I think that's great. I love it. And thank you for calling it an explosive discovery because I think it is. It was. I think it, it is. Was. Listen, uh, Sharky's back with me here and he's just, he. it's like, why do you want to love the night that I'm the most on edge about the podcast? I'm so nervous. Just get down. <laughs> because he heard... You're talking cats. Oh, you're right. You're right. He senses it. You're right. He's coming in. Or he senses your anxiety about it. Could be and that. he wants to comfort. Could be that. I think I am, admi- I'm emitting a scent for sure. <laughs> I, I, you know, animals sense fear. They, he's, yeah. yeah, it's thick. The air's thick. Let's put it that way. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. All right. So back at it. Here we go. Yeah. We can't talk about Carol Baskin without talking about the man himself. That's right. Let's get into the Joe Exotic feud. So I was trying to think about, my God, how do you how do you sum up someone like Joe Exotic <laughs> <laughs> quickly? So what I decided to do was I transcribed one of his promo videos that I felt really summed him up. And I'll just read it Great. to you now. I'll I just read it to you now. He said, I'm not cutting my hair. I'm not changing the way I dress. I refuse to wear a suit. I am gay. I've had two boyfriends most of my life. I currently got legally married. Thank God it's finally legal in America. 
I've had some kinky sex. I have tried drugs. I'm broke as shit. I have a judgment against me from some bitch down in Florida. But I can tell you I paid a fine with the USDA, and that is nothing but a civil fine, ladies and gentlemen. That does not mean that I was accused or convicted of any kind of animal cruelty thing. I built one of the biggest facilities and nicest facilities in this country as far as a private individual goes. I am Joe Exotic, and don't forget I am now stepping my foot in the ring to run for president. That's right, he ran for president in 2016. (laughs) I'm not even kidding. I was going to make the joke near the end of like, and I'm running for president because I thought that was like, I thought this was just like a mattress salesman ad that you see at 2 a.m. I did not know this was a legit run for office. Oh, yes. Oh, he laid all those cards out. He did. Now, I will say in the Tiger King documentary, they recut this. So they didn't show this in its entirety. They recut it. And the way they edited this, like, my boyfriend and I, we rewatched it so many times and laughed because they, they just really, it was like, I'm broke as shit. I have tried drugs. Like, it was just like the, the way that the, the rhythm of it went that they edited it. It's just, it's one of my favorite things. Sure. But Joe Exotic is probably one of the most eccentric human being characters in the world. And it should also be noted also controversial because he obviously did a lot of terrible things and a lot of people... Mm. You know, a lot of people that knew him did speak out after the documentary. They felt that the Tiger King documentary, uh, the original one, of course, the Netflix one, they felt that it kind of let him off the hook a little bit, that it didn't really fully paint what a kind of bad guy he could be. So we'll get into that as well. Yeah, but he also is truly a character. So some more fun facts about him, just to paint the picture. He's been married five times at one point to two men at the same time. Yeah. Okay. But wait, I thought he said he only had two boyfriends. Uh, at the time of the video, I think he maybe only had two boyfriends at that time. I'm not 100% oh. sure how that works, actually. That's okay. a really great That's a great question. Maybe he meant two boyfriends, and then uh, that doesn't include the husbands, maybe? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. So two of his husbands have unfortunately passed as of now, not through mysterious circumstances. Oh, okay. uh, one of them is actually covered in the documentary. It is a very unbelievable moment he basically was trying to show somebody that it's like hey if if there's no bullets in this if there's no um what is it the thing that you put in the bottom of the gun magazine yeah if there's no magazine very nice there's no magazine in the gun you can like shoot yourself in the head and there was a bullet in the chamber in the chamber oh my god oh i don't even know guns and i know that yeah you know but that was one of the uh, three of his husbands, excuse me, uh, he was one of the three, uh, did identify as straight, but Joe had a lot of drugs and uh, was very charming. And so uh, many of them talked about how that was kind of it. And there was also some discrepancy, depending on the interview that you watched, about how much of a sexual relationship they did or didn't have with him. But uh, the two gentlemen that he was married to at the same time, they did both identify as straight, certainly before being with Joe. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's, it's a wild ride, that documentary. Here's something. He worked as a police chief basically right out of high school. It was a very, very small town. Uh, and he did that job for, for a few years, but then he got into a car accident, which he claimed was a suicide attempt. But it also, like, to me, I was like, was it a suicide attempt? Or were you just, like, drunk driving on the job or something? Like, or or high or something? I don't know. But so anyway, he got into this car accident and he left that job. And that was when he really got into exotic animals. He first opened a pet store. 
and then he kind of got into this this much larger scale thing opening his own zoo now there are differing stories about the car accident he claims he doesn't remember anything about it sometimes sometimes he does sometimes he doesn't he does have a knee brace and walks with a cane in the documentary which I assume is connected to that car accident but again I he didn't outwardly say that but uh yeah so He's got this zoo of exotic animals. He's got everything under the sun. He's got a lot, a lot, a lot. And it's, again, a private zoo, for lack of a better term. One of his workers, now this is in in the original documentary, uh, Saf got his arm ripped off by a tiger, to which Joe Exotic says on camera, I will never recover from this financially. This is literally like in the chaos the documentary crew was there. So there is footage of this. It's very disturbing. Very disturbing. But what's even sadder is that Saf was such a loyal employee that they didn't oh. sue. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. Another example, of course, he would... And they talk a lot, too, about he would find people and, and people would kind of, like, commend, like uh, commend him because he would find people that were down on their luck, people who had done jail time or were having a hard time kind of getting a job because of past drug or alcohol problems and he would kind of bring them in but but then on the other side of it it was like he would do that because then these people would become dependent on him for things like money and drugs etc and then he would kind of be able to get them to do whatever he wanted them to do so again it kind of paints this picture where on one side it kind of looks like oh he's just this like quirky weirdo but then on the other side it's like no he actually was kind of using these people and again, when someone, a human being that works for him, literally gets their arm ripped off and then he's on camera, you know, within the hour saying, I will never financially recover from this. Not the best. So here's another fun fact from the documentary. He would get meat for the for the large cats and the animals from Walmart. So it would basically be expired meat, meat that had been returned. Or uh, if someone picks up something in a store, and then when they go to buy it, they change their mind. They can't put that back on the shelf, I guess, for, for you know, like, you know, sanitary reasons. So sure. then it gets put into these big bins. And so a truck would pull up once a week or once every two weeks or whatever it was with all of this expired meat. And I'm talking it's huge piles. But he expected the employees to eat from it first. So the employees who lived on the land of the zoo, each in these kind of dilapidated little trailers for lack of a better term they would go through and and take the meat that they would want to eat and then the rest of it would go to the animals except for the meat that got pulled that went to the restaurant that was located in the zoo oh my god yeah yeah oh i thought i was sick before yeah well (laughs) and yeah so Again, it's it's like the more you kind of unpeel, he's uh, he's not the greatest. So on top of the zoo, one of his big money makers was this cub petting business. So basically, he would take tiger cubs to malls, and people would come and pay to pet them and get their pictures taken with them. But obviously, this is like a super controversial practice because well, for a lot of reasons. But to kind of break it down. Tiger cubs, in order to do this, have to be taken from their mother literally the moment they're born. If they stay any longer, it becomes very difficult to kind of, like, tame them. So there's scenes in the documentary, too, where, like, Joe Exotic has, like, a, you know, a little, like, playpen in his house. 
and it's like full of tiger cubs and he's like getting mad at them because they're like crying or something and it's like dude like you ripped them away from their mother uh i don't really have much sympathy for you you know but the other thing to note and this is important is that they grow super fast so there's a very very small window of where they're big enough to do this and when they're also too big because once they get to a certain point they're too big and they're, they're not usable anymore So a big question has been with him and with other people that have done this practice over the years is how, if you're constantly running these events that constantly have tons of little tiger cubs, where are the adult tigers? Because statistically, if you start to do the math, you would have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, right? And he has a lot of them, but it just starts to feel like do you have all of them? Is he trading them illegally? Is he selling them illegally? Is he killing them? There's another gentleman who's featured in the documentary, Doc Antle, who is one of his big competitors. He was also in the, uh, you'll love this, he was an animal handler that Britney Spears used in her I'm a Slave for You VMAs performance. You can actually oh, see him. Snake? Yeah, you can see okay. him in the, in the back of the performance. He's the animal handler in there. There was rumors that Doc Antle had a crematorium where when the tiger cubs got to a certain size, he would just kill them because it wouldn't make sense. They're very, very expensive. It's ex- very expensive to keep large tigers, adult tigers, and, uh, you know, requires a lot of space, time, money, all of the above. That has never been proven, by the way, and Doc Antle, of course, completely denies it, but it's important to note. So Joe would do these things quite often. He'd go on the road. He had like a big van. He also tried to do shows that would involve magic, but he wasn't very good at magic. So then he tried to like align himself with a magician. And then there was this one magician. This isn't even in my notes, but this one magician was like, ah, he didn't seem like a good guy. So I stopped like doing my thing with him. Like it was, it was just a very, and he was of course very flashy. Like, you know, he would dress kind of uh, flamboyantly and stuff like that. And so he, he put on quite a show. But this is where Carol Baskin comes into the mix. So she was trying to get cub petting shut down in general and went after Joe Exotic specifically because he was becoming quite well known for doing this. To retaliate, now it should be noted, and this again we'll get into later, she changed the name of their business from Wildlife on Easy Street to Big Cat Rescue. And they had this specific logo that said Big Cat Rescue with a big cat on it. And... So to retaliate against her going after him, Joe starts to use this logo when advertising his own events. It's literally Carol Baskin's logo and name of her thing. It's Big Cat Rescue. He just puts it on the flyers and everything to advertise his own events as a way of basically, it's just basically a fuck you to Carol. Yeah. So she sues him for copyright infringement and obviously wins (laughs) because it's just blatant. So in 2013... He was ordered to pay her $1 million, which completely bankrupt him. He, he, it just made him destitute. She also at the time filed a subsequent lawsuit claiming he illegally transferred his land to his mother's name in 2016. Uh, an ex-boyfriend of Carol's, uh, who she dated after Dawn went missing, says that Carol is extremely smart. And his quote was, she is very good at court. Apparently, she researches everything herself. She represents herself and she wins consistently. He said her record is 20 and zero. Like she's just, wow. She's, she's a, she takes a page from our books, I guess. She just teaches herself and goes in there and always wins. Shit. I didn't want to respect her at all. (laughs) (laughs) 
this is the thing, right? And this is and this is what's interesting, I think, again about about Carol, and 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 again, we'll get into all of it. But it is interesting because she came from this very you know troubling start. She had these terrible things happen to her. It does feel like she's someone who basically was like, I have to do anything to to get ahead and take care of myself. And in some ways, it's like, wow, like good for you. Like you really like. You did it. And then in other ways, it's like, you're you're a psychopath. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Independent and badass woman, but... Bad shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, potential murderer and, you know... Yeah. Yeah, not the best. Yeah. So, yeah. Joe Exotic becomes completely obsessed with Carol Baskin. He has this internet TV show that he does literally every single day... And most of it was just debate, just devoted to smearing her. So he would like, he called her a bitch all the time. He would do all these crazy things. He dressed up a blow up doll to look like her and then shot it in the head. He uh, hung an effigy of her. Like he dressed up a mannequin like her. He hung it. He had someone fill her mailbox with snakes on her birthday. Uh, on her birthday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. He uh, he somehow claimed to get a hold of her diary and would read that in episodes. I don't know whether it was or it wasn't. I, I, I that I couldn't really confirm how he knew it was hers or got it or if it was, whatever. Long story short, he's completely obsessed with her. So he finds out at this point. So at this point, we're in like 2013, 2016, that range, right? Yeah. Um, but he finds out at that point about Dawn's disappearance. And so he kind of starts to dig into that. And he starts publicly accusing Carol of murdering Don and saying he put Don, she put Don in a giant meat grinder and fed him to the tigers. And he even writes a song called Here Kitty Kitty. And for that song, uh, he has a Carol Baskin lookalike. And in the video, it's her feeding like, um, it, he, it, she has like a platter of, of raw meats with a very non-realistic kind of like mannequin head and she's feeding them to some tigers with some some metal tongs and he sings this this song that's about carol baskin now uh he actually as an aside put out multiple cds of his original country music unfortunately it did turn out later that it wasn't actually him singing (laughs) (laughs) okay okay which just feels again like just feels right somehow i don't know yeah, I mean, I'm already learning. I mean, I did write down, I've been writing occasional notes to show that it. I'm listening I to make it. sure that, you know, I can uh, speak back to certain things. What the note, the only note so far that I've written about Joe Exotic is Joe Exotic BDE. <laughs> because I feel like there has to be some sort of just big dick energy because if all these like straight dudes are like I'm straight and then it's like well but for him you know like there's got to be something about him more than just like sure he's offered the money and drugs or whatever but there's got to be something where it's just like he's got an energy you can't deny it I mean people did talk that he's like very very charismatic and very charming and you kind of get like caught up in his whole like he's kind of like a tornado and then all of a sudden you're in it you know what I mean like People have talked about that, too. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, not a singer, but uh, has... Uh, but it's funny, because when you watch the documentary, they start to show clips of the music videos and stuff, and you're like, oh, he's actually a pretty good singer. Wow. And then in a scene, he's, like, kind of singing along with his own CD in his truck, and you're like, he doesn't really 
Henry. And then, of course, it comes out that it's like he actually paid somebody and it wasn't him at all. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. Speaking of somebody who just desperately wants to be famous, he is top of that list. Yeah. Number one. Number one offender. So, okay. So Carol wins this copyright suit. Million dollars. Joe can't pay the money. He's bankrupt. He doesn't have it. Enter Jeff Lowe. Who is Jeff Lowe? Jeff Lowe is a wealthy, polyamorous man who offers to help Joe with money for some reason. <laughs> it is very, well, it's very unclear to me why Joe trusted him and why Jeff wanted to help him. This is one thing that if you watch the documentary, you can see it's like, they, they talk about it a little bit. I, again, I'm, I'm trying to pare this all down. But in general, it's kind of like, okay, but it just seems a little odd. There'll be more on that. But he, Jeff is very, like, uh, he's, like, an older-ish dude, but he's wearing, he wears, like, bandanas with, like, a baseball cat, a lot of, a lot of like, the bejeweled jeans. You remember those? Yes, yeah. I do. Yeah, yeah very kind of like um, Tom Hardy. Not Tom Hardy. You know what I'm talking about. The Yeah. Oh, why am I blanking? Not Tom I mean, Hardy. He's the actor, the, the brand. Ed Hardy. Ed Hardy. There it is. Thank yeah. you very much. Tom Hardy, different guy. Jeff is like, don't worry, I'll help you with money. So he basically comes in as as a partner, but it's kind of his zoo at this point, even though, you know, it has to be in his name because he's the one with the money. He brings in a friend named Alan Glover, who is an ex-criminal, and Alan is basically going to be the person who does a lot of manual labor at the zoo. He's kind of just like the, I don't know, go-to guy, and he's going to do some, like, real work. So, Jeff... He's based out of Las Vegas, but of course, this zoo, I should have also mentioned, oh God, I didn't even mention the location, but I I believe it's in Kentucky. I might be wrong. We'll get back to that. Point being, he is going from the south to Vegas with tiger cubs, which he puts in his suitcases, and he starts offering these cub petting experiences where he will go to your hotel room in Vegas open the the suitcase and he'll have however many tiger cubs in there so you can have this private up close vip you know experience of course he eventually gets arrested for doing this but at the time he's also found with guns and because of his he has a criminal record that's a huge problem that's like an open and shut you know you're you're a you're an ex-felon or whatever and you get caught with guns you're in deep trouble but but to date he has never been tried on those charges and it would have been a completely easy open and shut case. So we're going to keep that keep that in the old noggin. So mm-hmm. shortly after this, uh, after this arrest, Jeff has goes to the uh, the feds, goes to the FBI and tells them that Joe Exotic offered his friend Alan Glover three thousand dollars to go to Florida to kill Carol Baskin. <laughs> Alan took the money, made the trip but did not kill Carol. So Joe claims that the money was a loan and Alan was going to pay it back when he got his social security check. The odd part is that technically at this point, it's a Jeff Lowe's money. Because again, we've, we've established Joe has no money. Jeff Lowe has come in with money. It's his zoo. So it's weird that Joe would be the one lending the money because it's not his money to lend. Odd. Then, so then the feds send in a special undercover agent who shows up And Joe Exotic says to this undercover agent that Carol, quote, has to go. The undercover agent says it could happen for $10,000, but no deal is ever made between the two of them. Somehow, that is enough. And Joe Exotic gets arrested on murder for hire charges 
as well as many animal cruelty charges, 21 charges in total, 19 of which were wildlife charges. So many people believe that Jeff Lowe had made a deal with the feds to incriminate Joe Exotic in exchange for him getting off on that gun charge because it doesn't make any sense when he was blatantly violating his own, you know, parole or whatever it's called in that case. But here's something. Recently, people have suggested that maybe Jeff Lowe and Carol Baskin knew each other prior to all of this and that they colluded together to try and take Joe Exotic down. And that that is why he approached Joe in the first place. Because again, it seems like odd. Like it was like, how did they meet and why? And why was he all of a sudden interested in helping him? No one can find any trace of Carol Baskin's first husband, Michael Murdoch. And you tell me if you think they look a lot alike. (gasps) Someone's doing a reveal. Oh, I'm so proud. Oh my God. I mean... I think they're pretty similar. That is... Right? Okay. Okay. Like, and also, you'll love that I couldn't get my color cartridge to work, but it's fine. So this hey, is... A, if I can print in black and white, so can you. I felt like it made it okay. So yeah. this here is Michael Murdoch. Of course, we will post this on True Crime and Cocktails and on the website, truecrimeandcocktails.com. So yeah. this is Michael Murdoch. This is Jeff Lowe. Obviously, Michael Murdoch, this is an older photo because, you know, we can't find anything about him anywhere um and they got divorced in the 1984 i think it was so or around that time uh so this would have been taken sometime prior to then and this picture of jeff lowe would have been taken you know 2013 16 somewhere in there so i mean it's not impossible it's the nose for me yeah yeah and the mouth Ah. i mean so This got brought up, apparently, to Jeff Lowe during a Reddit AMA and Ask Me Anything recently. Mm -hmm. And Jeff Lowe said, and this is a quote, Carol is not my type. If I was stuck on a deserted island with her, I would fuck a coconut. (laughs) Classy gentleman. Amazing. But it's also... But he also didn't say no. Exactly. And also, no one was asking that. People no were one just was saying, asking, would you rather fuck Carol or a coconut? <laughs> I hope somebody does because that's the most random thing. I would have asked him how he likes the taste of potatoes. Yeah. Going Good back call. to your first Good call. Thing. Absolutely. So in the court case against Joe Exotic, something that was interesting was the prosecution presented the animal cruelty charges first. And apparently that's typically very rare, usually in cases where you're tried against many different things. The case that's the most serious charge would go first. They would try and argue that first. But there's speculation that because they didn't really have much of a case against him in the murder for hire charges, that they wanted to start with the animal abuse charges to paint him in a really bad light. So then it could sway the jury to convict him on the murder for hire charge, which... They did. It worked because what they came up with was they actually were able to exhume five bodies of tigers that they were able to do uh, autopsies on. And it was it was shown that these were completely healthy tigers that had been killed only to make space in the zoo and for money reasons, not because they were sick or dying. Joe Exotic claims that he only ever killed euthanized tigers that were sick or dying. But that is not the case. And other people who have worked for him have come forward since then saying 
uh, that they did witness Joe killing animals, that he would just like shoot them in the face or shoot them in the head or whatever. And one of the people that worked for him was a gentleman named Eric Cowie. And he is heartbreaking to watch in the documentary because he worked there for years and years and years. And he it did seem that he did genuinely really, really love the animals. And he took the stand during the trial and literally cried on the trial, remembering how Joe would consistently kill innocent animals for no reason, with no remorse. And I think that that was obviously very impactful because he was a, you know, tough guy and he broke down on the stand and stuff like that. Carol Baskin took the stand in the trial. She said she feared for her life because of him. They showed his internet TV show where there was footage of him shooting, you know, a blow-up doll of Carol Baskin in the head, hanging an effigy of her. Again, it didn't paint him in a great light. Other people on Joe's side thought that it was wrong that John Renke never got to take the stand. He was a park manager for 14 years. It's like, well, shouldn't you have talked to him? But at the last second, he was cut from the witness list. People think that the the prosecution saw that the jury was, you know, probably going to, you know, find in their favor. So they cut him because they thought, uh oh, maybe he'll make them like Joe or something and we can't risk it. So Joe Exotic believes unequivocally that Jeff Lowe set him up. He also really hoped for a pardon from President Trump right before uh, Trump left office. He did not get one. I don't know if you saw that in the news, but he had gotten a limo to wait right. uh, outside of the prison uh, because he was so convinced it was going to happen. And yeah. it didn't happen, which is just, I mean, it's its so good. Um, and, you know, for a lot of people, too, and, and uh, again, I've really blown through the Tiger King documentary. Uh, it's, it is worth watching. Um but for a lot of people, the, the number one overall feeling is, is that, you know, he spent so much of his life mistreating these animals, keeping all of these animals in cages, that it does feel fitting that now he himself is in a cage, which does feel yeah. poetic. So Carol says the following about Joe Exotic. Joe and I had never, in fact, actually even had a conversation with each other prior to all of this, meaning the documentary. So the whole idea that was painted as this big feud between us was just fabricated for the purpose of the show. I did go after him because he's one of the people that I felt was abusing and exploiting big cats. I go after all the big guys, and he was just one out of the dozen or so that were on the top of my list for places that need to stop abusing animals. But isn't that ironic, Carol? Because it seems like you yourself may be a bit of a hypocrite. Okay. I like, oh, it's not just paper shuffles, also like the direct pointed Carol. (laughs) That means there's something coming, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, their website says that Big Cat Rescue was founded in 1992, the year after Carol and Don were married. But we know that, of course, at that time, it was called Wildlife on Easy Street. Now, it's hard to tell when it exactly changed names, but it does seem that it was it was under Wildlife on Easy Street until at least 2000, from what I could find. We also know that at that point, Carol was doing the exact same thing that she came after Joe for. She was breeding and selling big cats. There is even a video of her doing a step-by-step tutorial about how to take the cubs from their mothers at birth, how it's not cruel, and all this bullshit. In 1998, Dateline visited Wildlife on Easy Street. Again, this is a year after Dawn went missing. And she was offering a bed and breakfast experience, and it was bed and breakfast with a twist. And it was this experience where you could go and stay in a cabin that was in an enclosure, and you would be in there with animals. But the animals in there... 
they went on to say it was only the smaller declawed ones. So if this woman is trying to make it sound like she is this completely, you know, for the animals, altruistic activist, that is absolute bullshit. Because no activist, first of all, is going to declaw a house cat, let alone a jungle cat, wild cat. That's horrifying. Second of all, the fact that she was offering these experiences where people are going and sleeping, like who knows what's happening with these random people in this cabin with these animals alone at night. Those animals could be getting mistreated by these strangers. That's horrible. And again, the fact that there's this video of her going step by step talking about like, you take the baby away the day it's born from its mother. This is controversial, but I guarantee you they make great pets. It's her. It's her own voice. It's her leading you step by step again. And here's the thing. If at any point she had come out and said, I used to do this too, and I realized the error of my ways, and now I'm devoting my life to stopping other people from doing it, I can have at least some respect for that. But she doesn't. And she makes it sound like when she talks about it, you know, because they got, she and Dawn got a large amount of animals that they, quote, saved from a fur farm. Lynxes and and some other, some other cats. But I kind of, she's never really, from what I could find, she's never really admitted publicly that she did this, basically the same thing. Now, granted, she wasn't doing the cub petting, she wasn't taking them out, but I think paying $75 a night to spend the night in a cabin with two cougar cubs, loose, I don't agree with. Personally, I don't think that that makes you a good animal activist. It's no. it's unclear whether there was an employee in there with you for the night. I, I It really, it didn't get into it in anything that I could find out, but it didn't appear that, that there was. Um, At the time, the USDA said that Carol had violated the Animal Welfare Act, that the animals' water bowls and enclosures were not kept clean enough. There's also, of course, the declawing of large cats. There's also allowing them to be used in this way. And, of course, also on top of the sleepover experience, she was also offering just letting people go in and handle and pet, again, the small cats that have been declawed. Um, And when I say cats, I I do mean still like cougars, big wild cats. Um, Again, so... I'm not defending what Joe Exotic did at all, but I do think that it's very hypocritical that she was offering these services and that she's never admitted publicly to changing her ways or anything like that. So in 2000, Wildlife on Easy Street applied to the Association of Zoos and Aquariums for accreditation as a certified related facility. The application was denied in March 2001 for various reasons, including concerns about the amount of visitor contact with the cats lack of any trained zoological professionals on staff, insufficient formal veterinary programs, and unfinished perimeter fencing. Big Cat Rescue ceased physical encounters of any kind between the public and cats housed there in 2003. So this went on again. Now I understand that it was 2013 when she started going on her crusade to stop Joe Exotic. I get that people can change and grow in a decade. Sure. Great. To me, it's just odd again that you were engaging in that exact same behavior and that she's never said, I used to do the same thing or I did, yeah. I did things that were just as bad and I've changed my ways. To me, that's shady. So, But I think that that's why they changed their name from Wildlife on Easy Street to Big Cat Rescue. I think it was because she was trying to rebrand as being this sanctuary, this rescue place. Um, you know, she was definitely pushing the narrative that, you know, she's a sanctuary, that she hopes one day she's out of business because she hopes that, No one will be keeping big cats, you know, in these ways so that they'll never have to be a rescue to to help them. Right. But let me tell you a little bit more about their company names. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's never before revealed information. I love it so much. I went on a bit of a deep dive and I found a list on a website that lists basically any corporation that has ever existed in the United sure. States. And I found a few things. I found dozens of companies not only registered to the name Carol Baskin, but registered to the name Carol Lewis, Carol A. Lewis, Carol V. Lewis, Carol Ann Lewis. Multiple variations on the same name. Big Cat Rescue and Sanctuary, Big Cat Haven Corp, Big Cats Inc., Big Cat Sanctuary Corp, Wildlife on Easy Street Inc., Wildcats on Wings Company. Now that one was a for-profit company. A lot of these were listed as nonprofits, but some of them were for-profits. But there's a few that really stood out to me. So first of all, it's interesting to me that why are there so many? Why are there so many names? Why are they all in different names, different variations on her own name? Why are some her maiden name? Why are some her married name? Why are some her further married name? Because Mm -hmm. on this website, it shows you any time there's been a change in, like, you know, if the company changes the president or whatever, it shows you that change, right? Right. Then I found more companies and more positions listed under her daughter's name. Now, her daughter's name is Jamie Murdoch. Right. But there's ones listed as Jamie Murdoch, Veronica Murdoch. Her middle name is Veronica. Then there's some Jamie V. Murdoch, V. Murdoch. There's all these different variations on her name, her mother's name. And then it starts to get really fucking weird. And this is one of the things that I was like alone on my computer at 3 a.m. being like, oh, my God. Can someone see me through the computer? I feel like I feel like I'm being watched. Yeah, yeah. One of the companies is called Diversified Commercial Services LLC. The fuck is that, right? Sure. Let me, let me tell you a little bit about it. It is registered to Carol and her mother Mary in July 1998. That is almost exactly a year after Dawn went missing. To a P.O. box in Nevada. What business are you starting at from a P.O. box in Nevada with your mom? Because what that sounds like to me is a place to hide money. That's what that sounds like to me. Yeah. Right? And this oh. and the, the expiration date on that company? $24.98. That's when they listed the expiration date. So that was bought for 400 years. Or 500 years or whatever it is. What? So that company okay. that company has since been dissolved at some point. But there are other branches of it. One is in Tampa. Um, of course, where she lives. But I can't find out what it is. There's, nothing, there's nowhere on the internet listing like what this company does. The Better Business Bureau has a listing for that name. But it, I can't tell if it's the same business or not because it's located in North Carolina and it's it, on its logo, it says, for all your commercial property needs. And the people that are listed associated with the company are completely different people. So either this is a legitimate company because Don was into real estate and commercial properties, potentially, and she was into that as well. Maybe she started this company and they all opened all these different branches. But it feels very strange to me that out of nowhere a year after her husband's disappearance she would open a company with her mother in Nevada when she was living in Florida there's other ones like Carol A. Lewis apparently uh Trivest Investments Inc what is that 
And again, some of these are nonprofits, but the ones I'm listing now are obviously for-profit companies. And some of them are domestic LLCs, but then some of them are foreign LLCs. So for example, the Trivest Investments, Inc., that was started in 1988. So that's prior to her marrying Don Lewis. But that lists Carol A. Lewis as the president. It lists Veronica Murdoch as the treasurer and Veronica Murdoch as the secretary. So it has to have been updated at some point because at the time, in 1988, Veronica was a child. Do you see where yeah, I'm going with was, this? She was born in 1980. Yeah. And I know that because you told me. <laughs> <laughs> and I made a note of it. But do you oh, see what I'm saying? Yeah. It doesn't yeah. make sense. And there's also no real record because it shows every time a position has changed and it doesn't show that Veronica Murdoch became a treasurer or the secretary when she was adult. an adult. It just lists her there. So is this legit? Or was she listed as a part of this company when she was a child? Is Carol hiding money, is my point, and putting it under names of people that she shouldn't have? There's more of them. Another one that really stood out to me was, where is it? Here it is. United Truck and Trailer Sales, Inc. opened December 10th, 1976. I don't need to remind you that is Don's company because if you remember way back at the beginning of this episode, 75 hours ago, he bought the dump trucks. He bought six trucks. Carol Lewis is listed as secretary, president, treasurer, director, agent. Mary Stairs, her mother, is listed as secretary and also president. But there's no mention of Don. And again, on this site... Unless I just don't know how to use it and I can't see it. But on other things, it shows people coming in and out. There's no mention of Dawn. And again, why is it that on that one she's listed as Carol Lewis, but then on other ones she's listed as Carol Baskin? And Carol Baskin was a name that didn't exist at the time. Like, like again, like there's there's ones where, you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it just, it's, it's like you just start going in a circle where you're like, what the fuck? Like, this doesn't, none of this makes yeah. any sense. Why is she listed on in, on the one in Nevada? Why is she listed as Carol Baskin? She wasn't Carol Baskin at that time. So she had to update that. It doesn't... It, to me, this is wild. And I also looked up Joe Exotic because I was like, he's a guy. Now, granted, I looked up, you know, he could be putting yeah. things into multiple people's names. And he's yeah. had so many last names. He He's taken the last names of virtually all of his husbands at different points. So I tried combinations of so many of the last names I know he's had. And I could only find two companies listed to him. The one was the zoo. And then the other one was was like a nonprofit that it seemed like he had started. Completely Uh, reasonable. Completely reasonable. And he's somebody that I expected to see like, oh, does he have all these shell companies or whatever? But to me, and I could go in on and on about this because there was so much, but I, I won't. I think I've made my point. The point being is there are so many companies listed to her and her mother, and her daughter, under all these different variations of their names. Again, why? This is feeling very um, murder on Middle Beach. Jeffrey Hamburg had so many different companies that he was associated with, and sometimes it had his middle initial, sometimes it didn't, sometimes it would have a full name. So, yeah. And that was very clearly just like he was making shell corporations... For some money laundering, so and I think she, that's what this is. She hundred percent shuffling money around to different places. To me, starting a random business a year after Dawn went missing with her mother out of a Nevada post office box. There's to me, there's just no way that that's not shady. 
Yeah. And like, where's her mother from? Her mother's in Florida? As far as I know. So then, like, you have no business in Vegas. I mean, it's also, listen, and who knows, maybe it's possible that her mother had moved to Las Vegas. It's possible that it could all be legit. Let me let me make that clear. But it does seem odd to me that then there's also so many companies that are listed with those variations on the same name. Do you know what I mean? And a lot of them yep. are nonprofits, but some of them aren't. And it's like, again, like I, I read them all to you before. And there's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. 13 that I counted, 14 if you include another one that was just Jamie Murdoch on her own. That's not normal. It's not normal. No. It's not normal. And when they're all variations on a theme other than the trucking one, which again, I'm like, how did you change it into your name? How is it in your name and your mother's name? Because I bet you any money, if we could somehow go back, yeah. it was probably in Don's name and Anne's name is what I would put my money on. At some point. Well, yeah. Anyway, so that was my other, like, those were my two big reveals. The pilot license, which I think is crazy because there's so much implication that he died getting pushed out of a plane, potentially. Thus, if she was able to fly a plane, that's a huge, that's a huge detail. And also her forming all of these companies. It Mm -hmm. just feels, again, super shady. And it's also expensive to open a company, a corporation. I don't know how much it is. Well, actually, that's not true. Earlier, I was talking about when she did it for a friend. Her friend wanted to open that nonprofit, and it was $700. I know that, and that was for a nonprofit. I know that if you start your own company um, for a, like, for-profit, I think it's a few grand now, anyway. But the point being is that it's also, like, she's spending all this money to open all these companies. Clearly, she's trying to either move around or hide or whatever, a a large sums of money. And it should also be noted that there was a lot of discrepancy about just how much money Don was worth at the time of his disappearance. But the closest number was $7 million. So that's a fair chunk of money to get to move around. Yeah. Because she did end up with the majority of it. She she ended up with about 90% of it. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. A few more things. We got a few more things to get through. One, There is one more big reveal, but. You know, oh, there's still a lot. There's still a lot. I love that I was like, oh, there's not that much. There is. Okay. So ex-boyfriend, Alan Schreier, okay? He started dating Carol two years after Don went missing. They were together for two years and three months. I love that he could just pull that out. But anyway, uh, he worked in real estate. He had a son named Todd who was 15 at the time that they started dating. Alan met Carol on Match.com. Apparently, her opener to him when they started chatting was, buy People Magazine this week. I'm in it. Then you'll know I'm real. Uh, There was a story about her that week. It was about the B&B, where you could come and spend the night with the Wildcats. Apparently, he was into it. So they started dating. Alan says, as I referenced before earlier, she is the smartest person that he has ever met, that she's very good at court, that she would just read, represent herself. She had a great record. He moved in with her and his son, Todd, lived with them as well. Todd said that Carol is cold, distant, and does not like people. The rules in her house were extreme. He was never allowed to have friends over. He wasn't even allowed access to the whole house. She wouldn't speak to him at all. And eventually he got so upset about this that he moved out to live with his grandmother. 
Alan corroborates this completely. I saw interviews with each of them individually. They weren't in the same room. He said Carol does not like his son, did not like his son or people in general, that he would not talk to Todd at all, and that he would not let Todd on their side of the house. Forgive me, but as a mother... (laughs) (laughs) There she is. If I'm a single parent and I have one child, multiple children, doesn't matter. I'm a mother in some way. And I start seeing someone and they're like, hate your child. I won't speak to them. They can't be over on our side of the house. I'd be like, well, my loyalty is to my child over getting laid. So, bye. (laughs) Well, I think much like you... Uh, the BDE of Joe Exotic. I think you yeah. got some BVE when it comes to Carol Baskin because she oh apparently also, I thought the exact same thing. I was like, if she was that terrible to your son, why did you stay with her for over two years? I agree. But again, does she have one of these very charming, I mean, again, a lot of sociopaths, not that we're painting her with that brush yet, who knows, but it's oh, not I'm uncommon sure for, well. <laughs> 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 but right, like it's not uncommon for them to be extremely... charismatic and charming although it sounds like she wasn't to most people because a lot of people talked about how she was very cold and seemed to hate most people it should also be noted that at that same time carol's own daughter jamie was 18 but she but alan said that it was a very strange relationship he said that jamie lived on the sanctuary and that carol's house was about three miles away and that he felt their relationship was very distant lacked emotion and lacked empathy and I thought that was a very interesting description, especially when it's like, I know that 18, you're technically an adult, but also like a lot of 18-year-olds, yeah, a lot of 18-year-olds yeah. are still living at home. I yeah. thought it was interesting that she was living on the sanctuary and it's like, so were you working there by choice or was that kind of expected of you? Like, what does that look like? Um, again, so then Alan was asked, well, how did Carol present Dawn disappearing to you? Mm-hmm. And he said... Well, she said that Don would dumpster dive, not know where he was for large periods of time, would carry large amounts of money around. Carol said she thought he owed someone money and they took him out, and I believed her. Then he said, originally I was 99.9% sure she didn't kill Don, but now because of the forged will, I think it's (laughs) 50-50. I was like, that's a big shift. So that's Alan, the ex-boyfriend. His son Todd, when asked, said, and I quote, I don't think she's a killer, just a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I like Todd. Oh, yeah. Listen, Todd had a lot of anger in him, you could tell. It should also be noted, of course, where did she get this last name Baskin that we all know and love? Well, she met her current husband, Howard Baskin, November 1st, 2002. They were married November 1st, 2004. Uh, His number one goal in life, he said, is to make her happy. Uh, There's a bunch of wedding photos which I would like to post if we can in the case file and whatnot I should have printed one out I, I forgot she's in a wedding dress on the beach and he's wearing kind of like a cheetah print toga and carrying a club kind of Fred Flintstone-y but then in one of them they've put a leash on him and she's kind of walking him around on a leash no. yeah and I was like I feel like we're seeing into a bedroom we don't want to see into oh oh we've seen We've now seen, yeah. But then to answer your question, I don't know. I get the impression that Carol's kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, she's a tiger in the sack. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, 
there's, I mean, there's got to be the joke about her being a cougar. Oh, yeah. Wildcat. I mean, they're all there. Yeah. I mean, I just the fact that, I mean, so many guys go for her, it just makes me think she does a lot of stuff that they're into, you know? Uh, Yeah. This leash business is... I'm going to say, uh, yeah, I'm going to say that she probably is on the more open-minded end of the spectrum, it would appear. Yes. Which, ga- hey, yeah. great. Good for you. Yeah, God bless good you. for you. We don't, we're not, we're, we're not judging her for that. That's not. We're judging her for the death. Oh, yeah, the murders. And the forgeries. The, yeah, yeah. There's... And the mistreating of animals. And all of the weird companies and, yeah, yeah, there's lots that to yeah. judge. Weird sex stuff? No. Weird companies? Yes. You know, that's our it, judgment level. But I think I think what you, to, to clarify, I think what you're kind of like zeroing in on, which I don't blame you for, is what is it about this woman that if a man is seeing yeah. his son mistreated by this woman to the yeah. point she will not speak to him, she's mistreating him, she has a very odd disappearance of her last husband, but he still stays for over two years. What you're honing in on is like, there's got to be a reason. Like, what is it about this woman who everyone describes as cold? yes. Yeah, I, I assume she's cold to like anybody she's not into. That's what it kind of sounds like from from most people. Yeah, yeah. All right, we're moving on to a name you've heard earlier that I said put it in the old noggin, and that name is yeah. Kenny Farr. Now, to refresh you, he was the handyman that worked for Carol and Don, building cages, tending the enclosures. He worked with them for many years. They were very, very close. His wife Trish, well, his wife at the time, they are now split. But she said that at the time when Don was still alive, he was working seven days a week. Kenny was always with Carol and Don. In the original Tiger King documentary, Kenny said Carol would have lost absolutely everything in a divorce. He said Don was worth 20 million, even though he wasn't worth more than about seven. He said Don would bury cash and gold bars. He said that Don told Kenny. If I can pull this off, it will be the slickest thing I've ever done in my life. That was apparently the last thing he ever said to Kenny. Now, just a reminder, setting up the illusion that he was trying to run away to Costa Rica or fake his own death, etc., this story could fit in with that, right? And why that matters is this. New information has come out that shortly after Don went missing... Carol sold a lot of income properties to Kenny for under market value. Kenny's ex-wife Trish says that one month to the day after Don disappeared, Carol gave Kenny three properties. Now, these were income properties, so it was bits of land where people were living on them in trailers and that kind of thing and had to pay rent or or like, you know, whatever. So all of them had homes on them. She charged him $3,000 per property. It worked out to being... $9,080 specifically. Why is this relevant? Because anything under $10,000 doesn't have to be traced. That is $20 less than 10 grand. This is a woman, again, who's very smart. She does her reading. So those lands, the land was all valued at $150,000 and she sold it for just under 10. Four days later, after that, she gave him three more properties. This is Kenny the Handyman. I want to remind you of this, okay? So Trish, Kenny's wife at the time, did not give any of this information to the police until two to three years later because at the time of all of this, 
She says Kenny was very abusive and that she feared for her own safety and the safety of her children, so she stayed quiet. But then once they finally split, she was like, here's the, here's the tea. Sure. And it, it is, the one thing that is a fact is Kenny was eventually convicted of domestic battery. He threatened Trish with firearms in front of the children, and that is when she got out of the relationship and told police all of this info, and buckle up because there's a lot to come. So like I said... Kenny worked seven days a week. He was never at home. So she specifically remembers Saturday, August 17th, 1997, because he was home. So it sticks out in her mind because it was weird that he was home in the day, right? Sure. He got a page. He ran to the phone, and then someone pulled up outside, and Kenny leaves in a car with this person. She said it was he was in a panic to get out of the house. This was two days before Dawn was officially reported missing. So Kenny comes home that night around 11 or 12 at night with one of Dawn's vans. He says to Trish, help me with these. They go outside. He opens the back of the van, pulls up a blanket, and there is a pile of guns. She said guns on guns on guns, all different kinds of guns. And he was like, let's get these into the house. She's concerned. She's like, wait a second. What's going on? This is Don's van. These are obviously Don's guns. He said, listen, Don's gone. No one knows where he's at. And I don't want you talking to anybody about this. This is two days before he's reported missing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kenny then goes on to tell her that their phones could be tapped. So don't talk to anyone about Don. And he would refuse to tell her anything else. On the 19th, two days later... Trish sees on the news that Dawn has been reported missing. So she realizes that she knew about Dawn's disappearance two days before it was reported. So she asks Kenny, what's going on? And he says, and this is a quote, don't ask questions you don't want the answer to. Uh, huh? Yeah. So Trish says it was around this same time that a large freezer with a padlock had showed up on their front porch and it vanished a week after Dawn went missing. When she was later trying to leave Kenny, she claims that Kenny had had her by the hair, again, he was physically abusive, and said to her, if you try to leave me one more time, I swear to you, you're going to end up just like Dawn did in the meat grinder. I mean. Yeah. Trish says that they had two, like, like, meat plant, large meat grinders, Obviously, to grind up, you know, I'm sure big cow parts and stuff like that to feed to the cats. She said it was huge. It had to be pulled around by a golf cart. It was big. It should also be noted that when Carol was asked about the meat grinder theory at one point, she was like, oh, it's 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 like this. It's so small. It's like it's pencil sharpener. It sits on my. She never admitted that they had these larger meat grinders. This woman, Trish, claims that, yes, they did. And also, it's not like, it would not be abnormal for them to have a meat grinder that large. It should also be noted that Trish says one of the meat grinders went to the Tampa Machinery Auction the second week of September that year because she found the receipt in Kenny's pants. The auction only keeps its records for seven years, so unfortunately, it cannot be confirmed or denied that this happened. But in one of the documentaries I watched, uh, they interviewed the man who runs the auction He absolutely remembers Don. He said Don brought in stuff all the time. So it wouldn't be abnormal to see something come in from the sanctuary. That was not weird. 
Uh, he called Don eccentric, strange, soft-spoken, and said he would trade anything he thought he could get money for. But then he also said his love of his animals and his love of his money were just too much for him to only disappear. I thought that was interesting, as somebody who kind of barely knew him, uh, or only knew him in a business sense. So the 48 Hours documentary that I watched uh, said they heard from Kenny in an email in which he said, I have no idea why my ex-wife has come out with an outlandish lie. I cooperated with authorities at the time of Don's disappearance and took a polygraph. I had absolutely nothing to do with Don's disappearance or any knowledge of it. But let's keep in mind... He was he was given these money-making properties that were bringing in a lot of money. She sold them to him for basically nothing. Carol has said she loves Kenny, quote, like a son. And I think he was the only employee that she kept after Don disappeared. After he disappeared, she fired absolutely everyone. She got rid of absolutely everything that he, was Don's. And then there was speculation that someone said, I don't know if this is true or not, uh, that she never wanted to hear his name again. Spoken in the house. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So... Mm. Yes, so that's Kenny Farr, which, again, when we get into the theories, again, the, the, all of these things will come back. But the last thing we need to talk about, obviously, is Don's family and where they are in all of this at this point. So before he disappeared, Don told Gladys, you'll remember, his first wife, yes, that Carol was very dangerous. He said specifically he was done with her. He's getting a divorce. He said stay away from her. Keep the kids away from her. Keep the grandkids away from her. She's dangerous. This is what Gladys has said. So both Carol and Don's family have both both said that Don had this girlfriend in Costa Rica. They've both confirmed it. There was speculation that Carol said that he would plan his trips down to see this girlfriend when Carol was on her period. I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah. Carol has said that he would often take clothing for a, quote, petite woman when he would go on these trips It seemed like he was pretty open about the cheating. His lawyer knew about other women. Dale, the mechanic, knew about other women. Kenny knew about the other women. It feels like this was just kind of his thing. Like, it didn't really feel like he was maybe hiding it that hard. Now, my question is, you know, Carol met him when she was 20 and he was 42. And they had this illicit affair for 10 years. She was the, you know, sought-after hot young mistress. How does she feel when she's no longer the sought-after hot young mistress? You know what I mean? Did she think that maybe she was going to be enough enough for him? She was going to change him? That he would never cheat on her? Apparently, in one of her diary entries, she did say, I wish there was some way out for me. Whether that's true or not, who knows. So, the will would not come into play unless he died. And you cannot claim that a person is dead unless when they've been missing, unless they've been missing for five years. Carol filed for... Yeah. God. Carol filed his death certificate for his death certificate almost five years to the day later. And him being legally declared dead gave her all the assets. So Carol took all of the property out of Don's name, out of his family's names, put it all in her own name. She claimed that Don had disowned Gladys and all of the children when Gladys came after him for more money once in court. She claimed that Don said... Uh, he didn't want them to have any money. That he, he said, write them out of the will. And Carol said that that didn't sit right with her. So she didn't take them out of the will completely. And she went against Don's wishes. So again, she knew the ex-wife would come after her. Well, but get this. Then Don's family went public, starting to bring up their suspicions and, and concerns about his disappearance and trying to find them. 
Carol then said, you know, I was going to give you guys 10%, but now I'm not. Mm-hmm. Huh? So in the end, his family did end up with about 10%, but Carol got everything else. And keeping in mind that he was worth around $7 million, and I think it was probably more because he was burying money in the ground. So if you could find it, you could probably keep it. That's a lot of money. I mean, 90% yeah. of that is a lot of money, obviously. We don't need to do the math. Don't put me on the spot. I'm doing my best here. You're doing great. Thank you so much. But then Don's family continued to do press. They continued to be public. And Carol apparently said, you need to stop or I will go after you for the money that you do have. And they apparently were so scared of her that they did drop out of the public eye for a while because, again, as you very astutely said very early in this episode, so everybody's just afraid of Carol? Yes, that is the case. So this is also something that is a fun tidbit. There was never a memorial or funeral for Don. Carol said that she opened the letter when his death certificate arrived, and she said she opened it, looked at it, looked out the window... And the next thing she knew, the sun had gone down and she had zoned out for hours. And that was the closest thing she had to a memorial. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, that doesn't really sound like a memorial. And also, memorials are for more than just you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she definitely takes me as the um, self-involved type. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. But I want so badly... To like her because she seems really smart and like, I want women to do well. I of want course. women to succeed, but not this one. Not well, this no, one. not if she's done this crime and possibly other crimes. Specifically when one's a murder. Okay. Yeah. So Don's kids have demanded that the po- that police DNA test the meat grinder and that's left on the property. The sheriff just wouldn't. Just wouldn't. Oh. And then Carol... She, as I said, she only talks about the small one in the kitchen. She never references whether they had other big ones. I can't get a confirmation about whether they did or didn't, in fact, have the big ones. Again, this Trish Farr woman said that they definitely did. Who knows? But in the interview where she's talking about this, and she talks very openly about all of this in interviews, which is also odd to me, but she literally starts laughing. She's like, I couldn't even fit his hand in the meat grinder. (laughs) And it's like, that feels like something that maybe, A... I don't know, don't talk about it all, or B, maybe don't start laughing about it? Well, I mean, laughter could easily be like an uncomfortable, she's trying to hide something, so anytime she brings something up, she's gonna just like, (laughs) right? Well, there was also an interview, and now I'm gonna do my best to try and recreate it, it's not gonna be verbatim, but she does an interview where she talks about basically how awful it is that she can't be vindicated. So, but then she switches really quickly. So she's like, it's so frustrating. You can't be like, I didn't do it. But it's very sad. She literally switches that quickly. It's chilling to watch. It's literally like one of those things where it was like, she accidentally let her real self show for a second and then realized, holy shit, that doesn't look good. You literally were just making this man's disappearance and possible death about yourself. You should be a grieving widow and pull it back. Like it's... I'll try and find that clip to post because it's chilling. Mm. Yeah. It just felt like a weird, it felt very like it was a stage performance. So now up to date, Gladys and the kids are, Don's kids are pressing for answers. They're suing now literally just to get information. That They're not even suing her specifically. They're just trying to get information to see who they could even file against. They believe that they were cheated out of the $7 million estate because of the forgeries. 
Uh, Carol has filed a motion to dismiss that lawsuit, and now there is an anonymous donor who has come forward offering $100,000 as a reward for any information about Dawn. Now, as I said before, obviously, or we said in the beginning, Tiger King made Carol extremely famous, and she actually was on the most recent season of Dancing with the Stars, which feels kind of weird. Because again, she uh, potentially involved no in a murder. Offense, but they will take anybody, <laughs> don't they? Uh, I mean, that feels interesting. But here's something, and I didn't realize this because I don't watch the show, but when she was on the show in her debut episode, uh, Dawn's family took out an ad during the episode. So there was a commercial that aired that was calling for answers about his disappearance, which I thought was kind of a badass move. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, well played, because you know people are watching that episode for her. Oh, yeah, because she's oh, obviously, well I mean, a lot of people watch Tiger King. Now she charges $300 per cameo. Mm. Apparently she made $20,000 the first day she was on cameo. Can't talk about it. Oh, my God. Yeah. What Although, do you want her to say to you? Well, apparently she does. she says she does turn down all requests for videos relating to her missing husband. And this is the quote. This is the quote. I declined their request to say things that would make fun of my husband's disappearance because that was such a tragic time in my life and in that of those who loved him. She also adds, she doesn't believe or she doesn't believe those requests are coming from a bad place, but talking about the cold case is still a sore subject. <laughs> Did you love this man? Was there any like I understand that their relationship was on the rocks, but it just feels like it doesn't I don't even know. It just feels like again she makes it all about herself. It's all about like that was a hard time in my life. It's still a sore spot for me. Like not the fact that it's like I'm not going to make fun of my husband's disappearance because the man is probably dead and that feels like a disrespectful thing to do. Yeah. I also uh Sharky just like popped up on the table there, looked off and then just froze in this like existential crisis. Like just staring into the soul he knows he knows we're talking bad things about cats not your kind of cats buddy no and he's on the notes he just keeps stepping on them okay all right so look we're gonna get to we're gonna skip to the theories now we're gonna skip to the theories because there's still a lot to get through because there's stuff we haven't hit so first theory that i haven't even talked about is carrie carrie (laughs) now i'm getting frantic carol buried him with a septic tank so there was a theory that there was a septic tank put in around the time of Don's disappearance and that he was buried somewhere around the septic tank. The sheriff said, oh, it wasn't put in around the time of the disappearance, but the permit was issued shortly before he disappeared. And there are receipts that show that the dirt was delivered on August 6th and that it was put in on August 14th, which again, Anne McQueen believes that, that he went missing August 15th because... That was the last time that she saw to him, saw him. She never spoke to him again. Again, Carol says she spoke to him on the 18th. But the other thing we haven't confirmed is, did she see him in person? Or did she talk to him on the phone? That's never been clarified. So for all we know, he went missing on the 15th, right after Anne saw him. In which case, there's days. I want to remind you, the 17th is when Kenny Farr got that phone call and then ran out of his house. And then it was the morning of the 18th at 3 a.m. that Carol Baskin is randomly driving the streets. So that's the first one. Next one. Uh, So a lot of people are saying, dig it up. See if there's remains. Dig it up. But for some reason, they won't. Is it because her brother works for the sheriff's department? Who knows? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if he still works there or not anymore, but he did at some point. 
in the thick of it, he did anyway. Another theory is he's alive and well in Costa Rica. He loved it there. It was his dream to live there. We know he had a girlfriend there. Uh, apparently, there is a federal report that says he is alive and well in Costa Rica, but because this is an open case, the info is hush-hush. Now, there's been no movement in any of his bank accounts or credit cards, but we know that he loved cash and buried it everywhere. So my question is, could he have been taking it down there every single time he took a trip and burying it in places in Costa Rica? Is it feasible that he could have had millions of dollars down there buried in the ground and that he did want to fake his death to get away from Carol and all of the above and that he's living off of his ground money? I think it's possible. Anne said he could have flown domestic out of Miami. Though there isn't any proof of him flying, there's no mention of his name on flight manifests, and he had two passports, but neither were used that weekend. I am very quick to say he's not alive and well in Costa Rica. And I mean, I don't have a lot to base that on, but I think, like, he had children with Gladys. Yeah. I don't think he'd just be like, well, I'll never speak to my children again. But also, I feel like if he was like, if he really like fucked off and took off and I think that Carol would do everything to be like look here's proof that he's alive leave me alone stop saying I've done this yep so like I get like fake your death so that something happens to her but you obviously did a shitty job then right because they haven't pinned anything on her so yeah this is another is Tupac alive in the Mexico or the Caribbean or Cuba or wherever they said he was and the answer is no I don't think he's still alive right so right well then of course there's the plane crash theory you know Carol claimed he liked to fly illegally under the radar over the Gulf of Mexico we also know he had a history of crashing hadn't flown in years my question is isn't there a record of all of the planes that he owned and couldn't we see if there's one that's not accounted for that feels pretty doesn't that feel like the place to start Anyway. Yeah, yeah, it does. Maybe it was a bad business deal. As I said, he fucked people out of their homes and made a lot of money doing it. Perhaps somebody just got angry about it and wanted him to go away. He had a criminal record. He had 21 misdemeanors and he had a felony for illegal environmental dumping. So this guy, you know, he wasn't afraid to break the law. He had a ton of guns, which I will remind you is also very illegal for a felon. So it is possible to me that he was, you know, was he getting these, how was he getting these illegal guns? It could be that he was mixed up with some bad people, which brings us to another theory, which is the Dixie Mafia. So a confidential informant said that there is a property in Florida that potentially has bodies. It was apparently owned by a mafia guy who was a member of the Dixie Mafia, which was started in the 70s. Apparently they were brutal, you know, not to mess with them. And they had this property in Florida that had a lot of land which they used as unofficial runways for planes for drug traffickers. So it was kind of in the middle of nowhere, a lot of land. And it could have been that something went wrong, a business deal. He got tied up with the wrong people. This land is now cow pastures the, where the planes used to land. There could be bo- it's, it's huge. There could be bodies all through it. Um, in the one documentary I was watching, a gentleman tried to get permission to look at the land, and he was told very aggressively that is a hard no. And so he left very quickly because the guy looked quite angry. But... Is it possible that he got mixed up with the mafia, got taken out, and is buried there? Absolutely possible. Sure. The next one, and this is one that is really, really chilling, the lake house theory. Now, Trish Farr, Kenny's ex-wife, mentioned in an interview that there was a gator-infested lake that was never searched at the time of Don's disappearance. And it turns out Don owned a house on that lake. 
apparently the it was very rural at the time. There was a few houses, but not a lot. And it was kind of, it was remote enough that she thinks you could make noise and you wouldn't be heard. And that there was so many gators in this water that you could throw a body in there and it would go. Uh, now it's much more developed. There's a lot of houses and stuff like that on the lake. Carol sold the lake house in 1998, the year after he disappeared. So he hadn't been away that long. Uh, his house was a direct shot to the southwestern portion of the lake. So a search was started last year of the lake by a documentary crew for the first time. The lake had never been searched prior. They took a cadaver dog on a boat. The dog did alert multiple times. They repeated an hour later. The dog did it again. He alerted that he smelled something. This was 20 to 30 feet off the dock on the southwest side of the lake. Again, near where Don's lake house was. So the documentary crew called the police and they said, we've got this cadaver dog. This is what's going on. The police took it seriously. They sent detectives out. They sent divers out. They sent a boat out. It's the first time the lake again was searched in 23 years. They, the divers searched for two hours, but the water is extremely murky and they had very little visibility underwater. So they said it was really hard. The hope was that they would find a tooth or a clothing fragment, but what they were looking or the meat grinder did they take this giant sure. meat grinder and dump it in the lake? Possible. But again, the hope of finding a tooth or a clothing fragment are very small when you're dealing with extremely murky water. It was not. Sure. It feels like that could be, you could search that lake. You're looking for a needle in a haystack. So as of now, nothing has been recovered from there. But I thought that was a very interesting theory as well. Of course, there is also the theory that she simply put him in the meat grinder and then fed him to the tigers, as, as <laughs> Joe Exotic claims. Crazier things have happened, right? Because the other thing is, my question is, did Kenny Farr, she called him on the 17th, he runs. Does she help him kill him or she's already killed him? Does he help her with the body is my point. And that's why she gives him all this land as his payoff. And it's bought his silence. And he starts saying things that help prove this story. Like when he said, oh, Don said he was trying to pull off this great trick or whatever. You know, it's like, right. you know, so the last kind of theory that I was going to get into, but it also would connect to the meat grinder theory because she wouldn't be able to potentially lift this body on her own. I'm saying, did Kenny help her? She would have needed someone to help her. So throwing him out of a plane. Carol had pilot training, we've discovered tonight. She had access to multiple planes. He had many, many, many planes. Could Kenny have helped put him in a plane if he was potentially already dead even and then either the two of them go and while she's flying over the Gulf of Mexico he dumps him out or did she pick Kenny up take him to the airport or get him to help load the the body in, in the in the plane and then she takes off with the body he moves the van right to the to the airport or or what have you again I don't know about the timing of any of this and, and then so he goes back to the house, loads all the guns into the van, and then drives back home. So they could have been working simultaneously is one of my other theories. I, I don't have confirmation whether it was that she saw him at 6 o'clock in the morning on the 18th or that she spoke to him at 6 o'clock in the morning on the 18th. And again, as far as I can tell, I think it might be that they only spoke. But again, don't quote me. But if it is that they only spoke, why are we trusting her? Even if there was a call log, she could have had his cell phone and called herself from it. Yeah, she's smart enough. She's smart enough. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So in conclusion, dear listeners, what I'm saying is, <laughs> do I think she was involved in some way, whether it be big or small? I do. Christy, what say you? 
<laughs> oh, I, I, uh, this seems bold, but 100%, I think she did something to get rid of him. I think Kenny helped. I mean, it seems, I just feel like, what does Kenny's ex-wife have to gain by coming forward and saying things? Because if he, like, he was, it was proven he was violent to her. Yeah. So wouldn't you be frightened that he might, if you come forward and say something against him, that he could still retaliate against you? Absolutely. And the other, so, 100%. And the other yeah. thing about that, too, is that she offered this lake house theory that, by the way, doesn't really implicate Kenny at all. So if you wanted to argue, is she just doing this to get back at her ex-husband, that theory kind of has nothing to do with him. I mean, it still does because whatever. But my point being is that, like, She's offering more information like, hey, did you guys think about this? Which feels to me like it's like she may just have an active interest in trying to help. I mean, she could just try and be trying to screw him over, but he admits to the guns. He admits to that whole thing. He's like, yeah, I took the guns. It's like, well, what about the fact that they were illegal guns? What about the fact that you were bringing them late at night? Yeah. You know, like he admits to, to enough of it that it's like, so there is some truth to what she's saying. Right. Uh, I mean, really, the only question that I have. Yeah. Do you know the operating hours of Albertsons? Ooh, great question. Because I, she said she was going there at 3 a.m. My question. And also, like, can you get milk like, byproduct? She, yeah. Like, I have a lot of questions about that. But, like. It's a good question. At 3 a.m.? In 1997. I mean, now I would buy it because I think there's a lot of 24-hour grocery stores. That wouldn't be crazy. Sure. I mean, Tampa is a you know big city. But again, that's a great question. I don't know. And I don't know how we would even find that information. But again, it didn't I feel know. like, from what I was reading, it didn't feel like that ever really got properly investigated. It was kind of just like this blip. It's like, wait a minute. That feels a little bit odd. Isn't it odd to go run an errand at 3 a.m.? Yes. Yeah. Right? And then she happens to have her car break down. She happens to run into her brother who happens to work for the sheriff's department. Again, like, to me, I just feel like I think that there, that chunk of time between when Anne McQueen saw him last on the 15th and she reports him missing on the 19th, I think all of that time is in play. Oh, absolutely. Because I don't think anyone else saw him during that time other than Carol claiming to either have seen or heard from him on the 18th. I, I don't know that anyone else, from what I could see, had seen him in those days. Maybe, again, I'd have to I'd have to double-check the exact timing of when he saw Dale the mechanic. But my point being is, I think there's a lot of time at play when we're banking on Carol being truthful about, about the 18th. If you take yeah. that off the table, there's tons and tons of time for lots of things to have happened. And of course she's going to want to say... She's going to want to prolong it and be like, oh, I just talked to him. He's not missing. And then it was, oh, he was just here. Yeah. You know, just so that you give yourself time to yeah. do, to dispose of the body. Yeah. It should also be noted, too, that they talked about, like, if you give a tiger a whole turkey, it just eats it. Like, it eats it in the bones. I don't know what it poops out. I have no idea. But the point being is that, like... I think it could put away a man, is my point. <laughs> also, what bigger 
fuck you than feeding him to the tigers when she's like you know he's like i'm gonna leave you and she knows i'll have nothing yeah and it's like well here we go hits him on the head with something knocks him out who knows she also had access to guns she had access to those two handguns and may i remind you access to a arsenal of guns that they took out of that house right and why did they want to move the guns I mean, they were illegal guns, but, like, I don't know. There's so many. It's, I mean, again, it's why all these cases are unsolved, and it's why we want to talk about them, because they truly are just, just head scratchers. I am so proud to say this. Lauren Ash, thank you so much for your research. You went above and beyond, and I am proud to say, I think you made me look bad. No! I think no. you not true. You, the the student has become the master. <laughs> I'll say that. Well, I'll tell you this. I can't do it long term. My nerves won't survive. <laughs> I no. Uh, yeah. Listen, I I learned it from you. I had big shoes to fill. I just wanted to live up to the very high bar that you'd set. I had a joy doing it. Honestly, it's it is a rush. I will say. Yeah. It is definitely a rush. I get what, yeah. what the, the drug kind of high that you get when you find something. But I also got to mm-hmm. say, dear listeners, and I know we all already know it, but I got to drive it home having experienced it now. The level of work that this woman, <laughs> Christy, goes through to, to bring us this podcast, having done it myself. I mean, I knew. Logically, I understood. I didn't think she was lying. But having done it myself, it's a fucking lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I want to thank you because this really gave me a chance to see things through your eyes. And I, I appreciate you more than ever. I mean, I always did. But I really do have a very keen understanding of just what goes into making these episodes. And, and I couldn't appreciate you more. I mean, since we're doing compliments, again to you. Because, if I may, dear listeners, uh. You might think, like, I had uh, multiple people. Lauren said to me earlier, and even my husband, had both been like, oh, you don't have anything to worry about. You don't really have anything to do tonight. And I was like, are you kidding me? I am sick about driving that bus. (laughs) It takes, there is like a level of energy that you need to bring to certain parts. I don't feel like I hit it, but that's neither here nor there. It was my first time I'm giving myself a break. I thought you were great. Uh, But there's just like... Try like trying to to steer things in the right way, trying to like seamlessly, if I may, you know, take us out to a mid roll and then seamlessly bringing us back in. Whereas I was just like, "Hi," <laughs> like <laughs> I just felt really awkward and just physically ill about it. So let me say it: this job is no joke, and I appreciate you so much for that and i would like people to know the amount of effort that this takes because i'm just doing my best not to yak (laughs) that's just how it goes so i want to thank lauren for uh trusting me enough to drive this bus i uh would like to thank you dear listeners for uh taking a chance on an unknown kid sorry that was a line from Clueless. It's a I loved it. It's a it's a thing I quote quite often and most people don't know what I'm talking about. I'm also very pleased to announce our next episode is the result 
of our very first Patreon poll. Yes. Our next episode, do you want to, uh, do you want to announce the episode? Oh, yeah, because you get to do this. So sometimes. I'll, like, lead you in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Princess Diana. <gasps> oh, yeah! Now, if you would like to have a say in the next Patreon poll, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash truecrimeandcocktails. And then since you're online anyway, check us out on Instagram and Facebook at True Crime and Cocktails or on Twitter at Not Detectives. And uh, if you want to deep dive this case further or check out other ones we have talked about, truecrimeandcocktails.com is where you're going to want to go to get all of our virtual case files. And uh, we will post uh, any photos that Lauren has mentioned tonight. We will post those in there as well as on our Instagram and uh, we just want to thank you for joining us on this Freaky Friday Parent Trap Switcheroo, whatever we're going to call it. And uh, this has been a real joy. We've both been so nervous and very anxious about it. So be kind. And it is, I, I am completely jazzed to say this. Lauren, would you like to say goodnight to the people? Good night, everybody. Good night. We're the hosts of Hella in Your 30s. This is a podcast for people of all ages, all about navigating this dystopian world we live in. <laughs> That's right. So every Monday we invite you into our living room or out into the world on whatever adventures we go on. Or into our living room for an adventure in our living room. <laughs> yeah, like having your wife challenge you to a great British baking show style competition in your own kitchen. That's right. Or maybe, you know, you want to know what it's like to volunteer at a food bank. Or maybe, uh, well, you know, you want to hear what it's like to foster kittens in the midst of a pandemic. That's right. Super easy. But giving cats medication is literally the worst thing in the world <laughs> okay anyways if you want to hang out with us find us every monday hella in your 30s wherever you get your podcast Bye. tomorrow's a new day let's order